Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, January 18, 843-661-0937. Our number. Good morning, Josh. Morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. The NIL report brought to you by Everybody's <laughs> Transferring from Alabama. Welcome to oh. the real world, Crimson Tide. Uh-oh. Welcome to life after having a iconic, legendary, greatest ever college football coach. Now, it's not it would not be the same if a five-star transferred from South Carolina, right? I mean, if a five-star transferred from South Carolina, there ain't a five-star to put in his place. But if a five-star transfers from Alabama, hey, grab this other five-star real quick. Let's see if he's as good as the other as this other five. But Alabama is beginning to understand that life after Saban is going to be different. It's still Alabama. It's still one of the legendary college football programs of all time. Maybe you ready? Maybe the most legendary college football program of all time, but they don't have the greatest coach ever. And for somebody to say, well, they're not going to miss Nick Saban because he built this thing and it'll sustain itself. Okay. Okay. We shall see. My money's on somewhat of a decline at Alabama in regards to its football program. How do you lose the greatest coach ever and not notice somewhat of a decline? Um, and I saw yesterday the SEC freshman of the year and another five-star player are deciding to enter the transfer portal. Mm, the transfer portal. In other words, um, $400,000 in playing for Nick Saban is probably worth $750,000 and not. The credentials he had mm-hmm. of putting people in the NFL. Um, hey, I know I can't. Uh, we're, we're paying Dave Baker's kid $400,000 to play at Alabama. Ole Miss has offered him 700000 but look at how many Ole Miss players are in the NFL. Look at how many Alabama players sign multi-million-dollar contracts in the NFL. Um, I, I just say this in, in the most engaging way imaginable. Welcome to the real world, Crimson Tide. Um, good to have you back with us. <laughs> good to have you back in the uh, in, in the yeah, uh, yeah in, good, good in, timing in, though in, in the normalcy of college football. Um, NIL update. Uh, there's still editing going on. I don't believe it's all editing. I mean, I, I, you know, I sniff around the state house. I spent some time there. I think I understand some of what's said and some of what's not said. And I've got reason to believe through a few contacts of mine that there's some reluctance amongst conservative state house members to get engaged in what college football should or should not do. I mean, they're not asking taxpayers for money. They're asking taxpayers for clarity on what needs to be done regarding this enormous change, sea change, in college football. The kid can't get paid. Now the kid, kid can get paid. The kid is heavily penalized if he transfers from one university to the next. The kid is not penalized at all if he transfers. And the NCAA sanctioning body has issued guidelines, but it's a sanctioning body. It doesn't pass the legal smell test normally. So the, the universities in our state, three in particular, uh, the Tigers, the Gamecocks, and the Shauna Clears are asking for some clarity. Now, th- there's no doubt. When they ask for clarity, they're being fairly aggressive. They want the coaches to be involved. They want some of the ancillary funds to be involved. They're not asking for taxpayer dollars to be resituated in one way, shape, or form. But conservative lawmakers who believe in limited government that don't understand it, that don't pay attention to it, that honestly and truly could care less. But they're not in Death Valley. They're not in Williams-Brice. They're not at Stone Stadium on Saturday afternoons. They're doing their other things. They're hunting. They're fishing. Um, they're, you know, on a on a camping trip. I mean, 
believe it or not, college football bozos, we ain't the only people in town. I mean, there, there are other, there's some people out there, Josh, that don't build their Saturdays in the fall around college football. What? I mean, I don't know how you get by doing that. I mean, I think it's moronic to not. I can't imagine. Well, I mean, I've got a friend who actually decided to get married on a Saturday that Clemson and South Carolina had home games. What? And he scratched his head as, who if we made mad, nobody's here. I said, dummy, <laughs> your daughter's getting married on a weekend that the Gamecocks and Tigers are both playing at home. They love you as much as they ever did. They're angry with you that you didn't consider. I mean, you do, Josh, in, in, our, in our state. You, if you decide to get married after Labor Day, you better consult the schedules. I mean, you better consult the church's calendar or the country club's calendar, wherever, whatever venue you're deciding to get married. But one of the most important things you can do, I mean, if my daughter comes and says, hey, Dad, I want to get married in the fall of the year. Well, let's look at the Clemson-South Carolina football schedule. Because if they're both at home, it'll be me, you, and your, me, you, and the immediate family. Everybody else will be rocking at the, um, <laughs> the Wiggins and Bryce or, or Clemson. But I'm gathering a little intel that some of the conservative members are uncomfortable. Now, they can be coached, literally and figuratively. They can be coached into paying closer attention. Um, hey, you got a minute? Yeah, let me sit down with you and explain it. We're not asking the government to do anything. We're not asking for the government to make more taxpayer dollars available. We're just simply asking the government to give us some guidance on what Clemson, Carolina, and Coastal can do in regards to their collect. I think we'll get there, but it's not all editing. I mean, I'm convinced of that. It was supposed to be read across the desk. That's introduced. Uh, we, we always said drop a bill. Drop a bill on Tuesday. They didn't. They didn't do it yesterday. That leads me to believe it's a little more than editing. It doesn't take two days to edit a bill. It may take that long to garner support and answer some questions before you file. I mean, the bill's already been filed. just had not been read across the desk and introduced. So, um, so it'll be, I mean, I think, I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I think Mike Rickenbaugh has said on this show, I mean, I think it's archived. I mean, you can go back and listen. I think Mike said, I just don't know how interested the Senate should be in deciding the fate and future of Gamecock and Tiger football. Now, Mike will admit off the air, I've not paid much attention to it, Ken. You've lived it for a year. Help me, I mean, educate me. Help me better understand what you're asking of the General Assembly. And we're simply asking the General Assembly to give clarity to what Clemson and Carolina have agreed. I mean, coastal matters, but the majority of what happens up there is going to be the Gamecocks and Tigers agreeing. That is something that I remember well about the state house. You got Gamecock legislators, you got South, you got Clemson legislators. There ain't enough of either to get things done. I mean, there just didn't. Uh, you you, you kind of got to find some common ground. And and I would imagine I don't know this, but I would imagine Ray Tanner and Graham Neff have talked a lot in the last week or two. I mean, I would imagine the two ads, maybe the two presidents have talked, but it's probably more about the two ads. And I'll bet. I mean, they talk anyway. But I'll bet they have each other on speed dial in the last week or so. Hey, here's what we're thinking. What are you thinking? Well, here's what we're thinking. What are you thinking? Well, I mean, my crowd may not go for that. I don't think your crowd will go for this. But I think together, both crowds could get on board here. And um, and I think that's where we are. It'll be interesting when Jay, Phillip, and Mike get here tomorrow. Uh, one, two, or three of our delegation will be here tomorrow. And um, and we'll kind of we'll, we'll, we'll parse uh, the words of what. I've said, juxtaposed to what they're actually doing uh, in the General Assembly. Now, remember when the bill is read across the desk, there will be amendments. Now, there will be aggressive moves made by Clemson. There will be aggressive moves made by, by South Carolina. There will be some, 
I would imagine, I don't want to say outlandish ask, but there'll be some legislator that wants to do something out of the norm, out of the mainstream. That's the body politic. Some amendments will pass. Some amendments won't. Um, the majority of amendments that won't pass just never get introduced. I mean, you know you don't have the support on the, the floor, so you just, okay, I thought I had a good idea. Obviously, I don't. Let's move along. Um, but the, what I'm hearing, Rev, is the conservative nature of our General Assembly don't really believe it's a priority of, they, hey, man, we're just getting here. I mean, we got budgets and taxes and education. We got infrastructure. And you're asking us to put NIL at top of the line or front of the line, top of the heap? Come on, man. I mean, that's not what we're, we're here for. But I think once they're convinced, there is no budgetary consequence to this. You're not asking for new money. The budget is not going to be impacted negatively or positively. This is simply to provide the collectives of the universities clarity and give them some cover if they do something and the NCAA says you can't do that. Yes, we can because the South Carolina General Assembly monitors, polices, and advocates what well, makes laws that our public universities have to abide by. 843-661-0937. Okay. I mean, once again, I don't know that. I mean, I know that it didn't get read across the desk Tuesday because of editing. I ain't buying that it didn't get read across the desk yesterday because of continued editing. And I called two people, text two people, and they've led me to believe, nah, it's more about does the conservative General Assembly really want to, on day one, two, or three, get in the middle of, you know, the enormous reorienting of college football? I mean, that would be, I mean, I think Mike has said that. You know, I, we yeah, got a lot of initial other reaction. Things. When you first brought it up on the air, I think he said, <clears throat> I'm not sure this is something that. But, but he also but, but said, I don't understand yeah. it. I mean, I don't know. I mean, please help me understand. What, um, what the universities are asking of. And it's really the athletic departments. I mean, it's not the universities. Um, I would imagine, and this is probably the biggest difference in South Carolina Clemson. I mean, this is fundamental. I mean, this is, this is I mean, it, it's elemental. I mean, this is the, the faculty and administrators at Clemson understand how important that football program is. I mean, they understand it's their front porch. I mean, I got to believe that if you are a professor at Clemson, and you refer to the football program negatively, you may not like your job all of it. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it just seems to me from the outside looking at South Carolina, the administrators and the faculty, if they were allowed to vote, would probably discontinue the football program. That's the travesty. That's what frustrates me. That's why I very often tell people I'm pulling for the wrong team. I mean, I'm pulling for a team that, that, that really and truly does not understand how important its college football program um, is. Clemson absolutely understands it, emphatically understands it, and I think they do a wonderful job of, from the custodian to the president of the university understanding that your life in some way, shape, or form is impacted or affected on the perception of that Paul. Is that Paul relevant in college football? Is that Paul less relevant in college football? How did we do in basketball, the College World Series? I, I just think they... They are passionate about understanding how important the athletic programs are to the university's prosperity and existence. And I think in South Carolina, a little too fancy schmancy and cosmopolitan. <laughs> um, maybe that's what you get for having a university in the state capital. 843-661-0937. Does that wrap up the athletic hour? I'm done. Okay. That's the NIL athletic hour. <laughs> um, Sam from Cross Hills called <laughs> yesterday and said, hey, before you wrap up, 
this athletic hour. I don't think we have an athletic hour. We talk <laughs> Not a little planned. sports. Well, I mean, this is the convergence of politics and sports. I mean, there's a bill in the state house. I mean, it's not the Athletic Directors Association of America voting on an NIL bill. It is the members of our General Assembly. I mean, the very, the very same people that are deciding what abortion law looks like in South Carolina after Roe v. Wade are deciding what the Gamecocks, Tigers, and Shauna Clears can or cannot do in regards to an NIL collective, and that's their job. I mean, their job is to make laws. And, I mean, you can say they make too many laws, don't make enough laws, make bad laws, make good laws. Their job as lawmakers is to make laws. And the universities have asked for some guidance on what the laws say. They know what some of the um, sanctioning body says, but they also know the Missouri and Ole Miss and Florida State told the sanctioning body, go take a hike. And it created a monumental advantage when their general assemblies were proactive um, in creating clarity on what Florida State, Missouri, and, and Ole Miss can do. Oh, Missouri in particular. I mean, I don't know who the lobbyist or the consultant is in Missouri, but they nailed it. And they had a great year, and I'm predicting they'll be one of the 12 teams in the college football playoff um, next year as a result, largely, of what his General Assembly did. Before we take our first break, I'm going to give you a fair warning. I'm going to let you wake up, and I'm going to try and wake up a little more. There are two lawsuits at the Supreme Court. I mean, they're on the docket. They are to be heard. There were oral arguments made yesterday in a, in, a, in a trial or a court case that very few people are paying attention to. Obviously, the courts and Trump are going to have a lot of intertangle, uh, entanglement this, this summer. I mean, maybe spring, probably more um, like the summer. We know about the immunity case and some others. Um, that's not the big case. The Fisher case doesn't even apply to Trump, but it's going to do absolutely absolutely be fundamentally important to what happens in the 2024 presidential election. There's another, there's another case that they had oral arguments on yesterday. I mean, it's, it's complicated. I'll try to explain it good old boy style, but it's not about Trump, but it is. It's about Trump because it is the beginning of the deconstruction of the administrative state if the conservative court does what a conservative court should do. Let me say that again. The beginning of the deconstruction of the overzealous administrative state. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Ronnie in Darlington. Good morning, Ronnie. Morning. Morning, Ken. Morning. Josh. I uh, just wanted to call and ask about the NIL one time, just uh, maybe the players get a per diem and then uh, like a cap, and they have to get it at the end of the year. Hey, Ronnie, can you turn your radio off? Or turn it down? It makes it easier for all of us if yep. you'll do that. <laughs> Continue, Ronnie. We just heard you, and then we heard the delay version oh, of ourselves sorry. and you in the background. We're good now. So repeat yourself, Ronnie. Sorry, just asking, like, maybe the, the players get a cap, or like a, they don't get it to the end of the year as far as their pay, and then maybe a per diem per month or something like that. That'll keep them from jumping schools, maybe. Yeah. there's a Thank you. Appreciate it, Ronnie. There's a lot of cleaning up that needs to be done. I mean, it's not – but if you think about it, guys, and, and I'm using my arms here as illustrations. I mean, the, and you, you had the player, and the player had no leverage. The NCAA bylaw, I've read this. It says that athletic performance and achievement is part of the uncompensated 
student athletic performance. I mean, excuse me, I'm um, experience. I mean, it, it basically says we're kind of admit we're taking advantage of these kids. I mean, we're asking them to perform athletically. We believe that the value of the scholarship is commiserate with the contribution they're making to the university. And at one point in time, I would imagine that's a fair argument. I mean, to get a college degree, you're playing a little football. The coach is making, you know, 25, 30, 40, 50, a hundred thousand dollars a year. The assistant coaches are, you know, they're doing it for the love of the game and a little bit of a stopping. And then they go off and sell cars or do whatever it is they do, you know, during the golf season. I mean, that historically that's been football at the NFL level. Some of the great NFL players, hall of famers had part-time jobs, but, but college football changed as everything else did. It became a cash cow. It became a money printing machine and Nick Saban and Jim Harbaugh and with all due respect, Dabo Sweeney and Steve Spurrier. I mean, those guys got enormously wealthy coaching a game in which the performer was not adequately compensated. And you had to believe that at some point in time, and I've said this before, and I, and I think, you know, I say some dumb things, I say some smart things. I'll confess. Uh, probably say more dumb things than smart things. But I said several years ago that if the NCAA doesn't give an inch, they're going to be made to give a mile. It was, it was, I don't, it was one of these coaches that made, signed a deal like $80 million for eight years. And I remember thinking to myself, so, so the game of college football and college athletics believes that it can pay a coach $10 million annually and continue to believe that the value of that scholarship is proportional to what that kid's contributing to that money-making endeavor. There's no way. I mean, there's no way you can defend that. I'm not saying it's easy to defend where we are today because I do believe the kid has too much leverage in the negotiation now. I mean, it's the wild, wild, wild west. I mean, if the NFL is the wild west, college football is the wild, wild, wild west. And there do need to be considerations of salary caps and slot fees and, and some others. I mean, I've got this idea that – the the college college foot the NCAA uh, well I mean let's let's get the NCAA out of it I mean I don't trust them to they cause the problem I certainly don't trust them to fix the problem but let's establish a college football commissioner I mean I put on Facebook last week Nick Saban understands the game Nick Saban is a hardworking competent man I understand he's got businesses he and two partners or or three partners on auto dealerships I mean he's got more money than he knows what to do I get all that I understand all that. But the majority of Nick Saban's prosperity is owed to what? College football. College football's been very good to Nick Saban. Nick Saban's been good for college football. But Nick Saban could really give back to college football if he agreed to be its first ever commissioner. College football needs a commissioner. I mean, the conferences has commissioners, but the Big Ten's looking after the Big Ten. The SEC's looking after the SEC, the ACC, the Pac-12. I mean, all in Notre Dame. I mean, all these universities are looking after themselves. College football needs commissioner that that makes as a priority every day the betterment of the game. What kind of future does this game have? And I think Nick Saban is unbelievably competent and understands college football. He is 72, but give him a three-year deal and, and let him get a top lieutenant that he gets to handpick. And that guy becomes, you know, in three years, the next commissioner of college football. And we clean up some of this stuff. We, we create clarity where there's so much ambiguity we create consistency and you know what happens in Oregon and Washington has to be similar to what happens in in South Carolina and Clemson Michigan Notre Dame uh you know uh LSU Alabama they're all playing 
by somewhat of the same rules. And I believe the best way to compensate a kid is to take the commissioner, him put together some evaluation panel, and if the running back at Clemson is ah, predicted to be the 42nd player in the NFL draft, and that 42nd slot in the draft pays X number of dollars, he gets a quarter of that. I mean, he gets twenty up to 20% of that, 30%. I mean, there's some arbitrary number out there. I don't know what the number is. I mean, I've got no idea what a college football player should play, should um should make. I mean, it really and truly boils down to what he'll take, what you'll pay. You know, if if um if the quarterback at Clemson is offered a half million dollars by the Tigers, and the quarterback at Clemson is offered a you know seven hundred thousand by Texas A and M, then he's worth seven hundred thousand dollars. I mean, the market dictates that, but there's got to be some guideline. There's got to be some parameters. There's got to be some measure of of regulation, and I think the best way to do it is to appoint a college football commissioner, and in the case of what a kid should make, let that commissioner oversee a talent evaluation panel, and that talent evaluation panel, because we're a farm team for the NFL. I mean, let's admit, that's what it is. You know, um, the smaller schools are single-A baseball, the mid-majors are double-A baseball, and the power five is triple-A baseball. I mean, we're, we're getting kids ready to go play in the NFL. That's what the Gamecocks and Tigers are doing. That's what the Crimson Tide and Wolverines are doing. They're getting kids ready to play for the NFL, but they're generating enormous amounts of revenue. And the kid deserves a piece of that pie. He just does. I'm sorry. I mean, he deserves a piece of that pie. When I go to a Springsteen concert, you know who I expect to get paid the most? I mean, I don't expect the roadie to get paid more than Bruce does. But in essence, that's the model we married ourselves to. And had the NCAA been willing to give along and along and along and along, they would not be in the situation we're in, and the game would not be in such turmoil. And and there's a way to get it back. But, you know, the, the talent evaluator could say, hey, you know, when, when I sit out with this kid from Clemson or Carolina, I mean, you know, you're projected to be the 72nd player in the NFL draft. Here's what the 72nd player in the NFL draft and their slot fee is. It's a million dollars. You get to make a quarter of that, 20% of that. I mean, there's some number, there's some formula out there that somebody smarter than I can come up with, and you get kind of a standardized way of compensating players. And really and truly, you put it in the hands of the university's quasi-front office who overpaid for players. I mean, I've always said my admiration for the Braves is not only that I grew up a Braves fan and they're, you know, kind of a Southern team, it's the fact that they have the 13th highest payroll. Liberty Media owns that team, and they don't give a blank check. They don't just go out and get this free agent. I mean, Ted Turner did. George Steinbrenner did. Jerry Jones does. But that's ego. I mean, that's ego, and that's their damn money. I mean, they do with it what they, what they choose to do. Liberty Media says to the Braves front office, hey, here's your budget. Go be the best you can be. And they've been really good at that. Value propositions. I mean, they have bargain shopped. They have paid enormous amounts of money for players that they think are worth it. They have paid less than enormous amounts of money for players that they think makes them a better team. So you would really put the onerous on what I'd call the organizational structure of Gamecock and Tiger football, Crimson Tide or Wolverine football. And that's intriguing to me. Do you have smart people running your programs or not? Well, obviously the Braves does. What's the name? Alex Andropoulos? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's obviously a very bright uh, a very they just signed man. him to a big, long well, extension. I mean, they should. Deal. I mean, they should. Yeah, he's the best investment the Braves have ever made. Thirteenth highest payroll, 
and they're, you know, one, two, or three in wins nearly every season, but they don't win World Series. Okay, they don't. I mean, you're right, they don't. But they're in the hunt for the World Series with the Yankees, Mets, Dodgers, Red Sox. I mean, those teams have enormous budgets, almost unlimited amounts of money. But the Braves hang in there year after year because they know how to scout and evaluate, and they know how to run an organization. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Great job on the bumper, Josh. Thank you. Josh has really devoted himself to better understanding. He's heard all about our music, so now he's devoting himself to, nah, I don't want to say fall in love with our music, but but respect our music as he as he should. Let's go to the phone. It's almost there. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, it's amazing to think back when this all started over – Band players, uh, band scholarships could give music lessons and make a little money on the side, but they wouldn't let the football players go to a summer camp and teach kids how to play football for a little bit of money. So from there, we've gotten here. You know, I know the football program generates a lot of money, but look at what we've done with that money, the facilities, the, the you know, the weight rooms, the, the buildup of the, the strength coaches and the psychology and the this and the that. And then you have to un- wonder what is the minimum wage for a 17, 18-year-old kid that's unproven in college football work. I mean, you, you can strike fire every once in a while, like the Patriots did with Tom Brady and Belichick, and you see what happens when Tom Brady left. Belichick kind of wasn't so great anymore. I think in the college football world, we've got, what, six, 168 schools that put out football players. And about 20,000 players, I guess, feeding a a 2,000-player professional football. So most of the student athletes don't go on to professional sports in all of it. And we're trying to set a, a number based off of getting a good coach with a good plan I, I don't know how we solve that problem without creating so many more problems. You either do away with the the education part because the emphasis on winning football games, you know, they take underwater basket weaving, and that's probably why most of the football players are bankrupt within five years after they retire. That's just my two cents worth. Thank you, Joe. Well, I mean, I'll admit that the way it is being run today is unsustainable, and it's not in the best interest of the university, the fan, the donor, uh, the game. That's why I think someone like Saban, I mean, Saban understands. I mean, the one thing you can say about Nick Saban, I mean, he won a lot of championships, but Nick Saban didn't look for the easy way. I mean, historically, he's known as a guy who will grind. I mean, I'll pay whatever. I mean, he teaches kids to grind. You know, there's perfection out there somewhere. Let's pursue it. 
I mean, do you, do you become perfect? No, we know that. But but Saban's modus operandi basically was the pursuit of perfection, the dedication it takes to be the best you can be each and every day. There's no easy way to be great. And I think Saban and that mentality is what college football needs today. How do we build this football ecosystem in a way that allows the game to prosper and remain healthy? And the NCAA are not the ones that need to be in charge. I mean, they're just simply not. They've made too many mistakes to be trusted to, to make it better from here on. And that's why I say Nick Saban. Um, I understand college football from the outside. But I, I mean, Saban obviously understands it to an extent and at a degree that very few human beings that have ever lived understands it. And he understands what it takes to be successful. Now, obviously, being at LSU is easier to be successful than being at BYU. Being in Alabama is easier to be successful than anywhere else in America. I mean, you know, other than maybe Michigan, Ohio State, LSU, uh, you know, there's a handful of programs that are just destined to be successful by whatever, legacy, tradition, rich history, um, commitment, all in. You know, some of these programs have made enormous commitments to football. I, you know, I'm with Joe. There's a bit of me. There's more than a bit of me. There, there's a lot of me that wishes, if, I, if I've got to have what we've got today, if you gave me an option A and an option B, and option A was, as a college football fan, we're going to keep doing it the way we're doing it, and, and, and let the chips fall where they may. And option B was, we're going back to full-blown amateur athletics. We're going to pay a science teacher a little bit more money to be the football coach and tryouts at one thirty Saturday afternoon for all you good old boys that thought you were all that in high school. I'd take that. I mean, today, I would take that before I would take what we currently have. Um, and I guess my, my sympathy is I understand how we got here. And I think the NCAA brought all this on. Joe mentioned, you know, letting a band member give music lessons and making a little extra money, but forbidding the football player. The football player couldn't um, do anything to make extra money. Couldn't have a side job. I mean, the absurdity of that. It's control. I mean, the NCAA was a bully. I mean, if I wanted to be real provocative, Josh, you know what I'd say? It was the plantation model's last stand. I mean, that, in essence, that's what college football was. And it was okay when nobody was getting rich. But all of a sudden, the athletes are making everybody else rich, and they're not participating in the extravagant funds that are making its way into the coffers of these universities and the NCAA commissioners making over a million dollars. I mean, if my son were a five-star football player playing at Clemson, oh, no, that ain't happening, um, if, if playing at Georgia, and, and I read where Kirby Smart had just signed an $80 million, you know, eight-year, eight $80 million contract. And as a defense coordinator, they just hired a new D.C., and he's paying him $2.5 million. I'd sit down with my kid, and i say, look, you cool with this? I mean, do you think this, all I want is fair for you. I mean, I'm your parent. You don't understand the economy. You don't understand business. But let me tell you what they're doing. I mean, the university's raking in a percentage of a billion-dollar television deal. Your head football coach, the guy that sat in our office, and said how much he loved Jesus and wanted him to come play with us. I mean, he's making $10 million a year. His defensive coordinator, you're a linebacker, you're, you're, um, your position coach is making a million, the coordinator's making $2.5 million. What are you getting? You're getting a degree in criminal justice. You're getting a degree in political science. You're getting a degree in economics. I mean, that degree, that, that degree's worth something. There's no doubt about it. But you're contributing to the financial success of people 
and you're not participating. I mean, that is political. That's economic. I mean, that, that's fairness or not. And, and once again, I don't like where we are, but I like where we are better than where we were. I like the kid getting more than he should than getting nothing. Now, in a perfect world, we find equilibrium. You hire Nick Saban. Nick Saban becomes commissioner of college football. Give him about 18 to 24 months and let him resituate the game, reorient the game, find some place that people can be okay with. And when we've got some equilibrium of the game, the university's got this, the, 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 the body politic has that, the kid has this, uh, the fan gets this, the donor gets that. Everybody feels okay with what they're being dealt, the hand they're being dealt, and the association they have with college football. But if I had to take either or, and my choices were what we have today or the gym teacher coaching football and getting a stopping because he's putting in a little extra time and the good old boy showed up at 1.30 on a Saturday afternoon for tryouts, I'd take that. I really and truly would. Let's take a break. We'll be back in a few moments. 843-661-0937. I was thinking about it riding over this morning. I mean, it took me about the whole way to work for the windshield to get clear enough so you could really see where you're going. Cold <laughs> weather is in store for the entire country. No uh, the NFL football games will be impacted by cold weather. The deep south will be frigid over the weekend and for the next several days. Remember the bit we did, and we know enough about EVs to be dangerous, but remember the bit we did about lithium ions and how they flow through this liquid electrolyte and that produces the electricity necessary to drive an electric car. Um, I don't know if you saw these stories or not, but all over America, in the Midwest in particular, you had EVs just stalled, sitting beside the road, not accepting a charge. Um, and I went back to the um, lithium ions and how they flow through the, um, the liquid electrolyte from one side of the battery to the other. And when it gets real cold, um, the battery can't accept the charges fast. And when it gets really, really, really cold, um, the batteries get so cold that the electrons just don't move at all. And it's almost impossible. I said almost impossible to charge an EV when it gets real, real cold. It is impossible to fast charge an EV. And there were so many cars stuck in charging or at charging stations. The Tesla in particular, they're famous and kind of widely known for their fast charging. But, um, but when it gets real cold, I'm not talking about 50. I mean, you're okay there. But when it gets 10, 12, 5 degrees below zero, when the temperature makes a tremendous plunge, I mean, the EVs are just almost useless. Because once again, um, you got to have this, this well, I mean, I'm getting above my pay grade here. You got to have this electronic activity <laughs> that goes on in these, um, and these lithium ions. I'm doing my fingers here floating around. They've got to be able to travel through this liquid electrolyte and I mean, that's what generates the electricity that that is produces electricity in essence. And when it gets so cold, the battery just doesn't work. Um, and I was thinking about cold cranking amps. I mean, in my world, in industrial fort lifts and, you know, backhoes. And I mean, that's the world I kind of come from. We had a farm and we had a manufacturing business. So we were always buying batteries. I mean, we're always buying batteries. And it was always important. What are the cold cranking amps? And the cold, the, the better the cold cranking amps, the more the battery cost. And my dad didn't want to pay a lot of money for a battery. And my dad's excuse was always, they don't get that damn cold down here. Don't buy that expensive battery. And then it would get cold and things wouldn't crank and you'd get 
Now, we should have bought the cheap battery, but we always bought um, the cheap battery. My, we had a philosophy. If somebody stole batteries, we'd rather them steal cheap batteries. That's a, that's a crazy philosophy. <laughs> but we knew that, you know, there was going to be some drug user that needed drug money, and the easy target was batteries on a truck or a forklift, and, um, and we couldn't secure all of our fleet. <laughs> they weren't worthy of securing. There, there were probably a few forklifts in our business where if we put a new battery, that doubled the value. I mean, that doubled the value. We, we ran a shop. I should be ashamed to say this because we were profitable most of our years. We ran an entire shop with one battery. In the morning, how do you do that? In, in the morning, we'd crank a forklift and take the battery out. We'd take that same battery, go crank the other forklift and take it out. We'd go to the back and crank the third forklift and we'd take the battery out. And we'd put the battery in somewhere and store it and charge it and all that stuff. And somebody's job every morning because people stole batteries so bad. And these forklifts were on the yard. And, I mean, we didn't have guard dogs. We didn't have guards. And we were good old boys trying to do what we could do to just a good old boy. Never meaning no harm. <laughs> you know, you know where I'm at no, here. No. It wasn't Luke and Bo. Right. It was Ken, Sammy, and Jimmy. Anyway, <laughs> um, and I was thinking about the um, the coal cranking amps. And there was a picture, and I'm sure it was the New York Times. It might have been the Wall Street Journal of a line of Teslas at charging stations and nobody was getting a charge and everybody had to catch public transportation or call a, a family member or loved one. Hey, I need a, I need a ride back in a few. I want to get into these two lawsuits, but we're not going to have enough time. I want to make sure we have plenty of time to kind of walk through methodically um, some of the lawfare, some of the legal language. There are two suits out there. One directly affecting Trump. The other very much in line with the Trump ideology of deconstruction of the administrative state. I mean, Trump doesn't run around saying deconstruct the administrative state. Rather, he says, drain the swamp. You know, the game is rigged. Jamie Dimon, America's banker, the banker and CEO, or I don't want to call him, he's a banker. I mean, there's no doubt he's a banker, but he's CEO of J.P. Morgan. And probably, I think Red would agree to this, the most respected banker on Wall Street. When the world right. blew up, J.P. Morgan was in a better place than all the other banks together. In fact, the government had to convince Jamie Dimon it's in all of our best interest for J.P. Morgan to participate. He had not invested heavily in subprime lending. He didn't have a lot of exposure to some of the uh, some of the issues the other banks had. Was he lucky? Ah, uh, maybe. Was he good? Yes. He's a very good banker. J.P. Morgan is probably the elite of all elite. Wall Street investment firm slash slash banks. Jamie Dimon was in Davos. Imagine that. Um, a Davos man, mea culpa, may have happened yesterday. When Jamie Dimon was being interviewed by CNBC, uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin was there, and he wanted Jamie Dimon to defend, you know, any concern or any um, any positive words he may have to say about Donald Trump. And Dimon surprised everybody. I mean, I got to believe that Davos gasped. And Davos cut, uh, whoa, what, what did you hear what Jamie Dimon said on, on CNBC? The majority of us could care less what Jamie Dimon says on CNBC. What Jamie Dimon says on CNBC doesn't really affect the majority of our life. I don't know how many of you borrow money from J.P. Morgan. I don't know how many of you are in are investment banking, but uh, but some are. And he's a, he's a major economic influencer, and he's a prominent voice in American discourse. But he just is. Um, Jamie Dimon said a lot. But the one thing I found so interesting, Josh, that Jamie Dimon said, um, he was talking about the economy, and then it, it transitioned to politics. And Jamie Dimon said, 
because I think they may have asked him, you know, what do you make of this Trump craziness? I mean, what do you make of this guy that's got 91 indictments, two impeachments, and he's still, I mean, he's like the, you know, the cold that won't go away. He's still there. He's still relevant. He's still a force. He still has a chance to be president of the United States. And Jamie Dimon said that when the majority of Americans look at the Trump administration, they accept the craziness. They understand the chaos and controversy. They'd probably rather not have that. But they also know that he was right on NATO. He was right on China. His ideas and philosophies are right on trade. And it's going to be hard to undo what we've done in trade. Um, you know, maybe he's wrong on the debt, but what do you do about the debt? Who is right on the debt? I mean, really, you want to go down that road? You want to start telling people that get Social Security and Medicare benefit that you're not going to get that any longer? So we gave him somewhat of a pass on on the debt. But then Jamie Dimon said something that caught the, the CNBC panel off guard. Jamie Dimon said, why do we ask people, why are you supporting Trump? I mean, when you have someone on this show, nobody says, why are you supporting Joe Biden? Why are you supporting Ron DeSantis? Why are you supporting Nikki Haley? It's only Trump. And it's almost like they've got to defend this decision they've made. The 75 million fellow Americans that have decided Donald Trump is their choice, we don't ask anybody else, hey, why are you a Biden supporter? Why are you a Haley supporter? Why are you a DeSantis supporter? It's only Trump. It's only Trump that we say, hey, instead of why are you a Trump supporter, why don't you say, hey, defend your ignorant support of Donald Trump? I mean, that's what they're saying. Defend, you ignorant person, you, your support of this bona fide crazy man who you think should be president. And Diamond said, I just believe the anti-MAGA rhetoric makes Trump even stronger. I think the anti-MAGA rhetoric that comes out of the media and some of the elites and academia, I think it just breathes fire into this machine that, um, that have a, a, an unabashed loyalty to Donald Trump. And Diamond gets it. Now, now Rev said, wonder what happened with Diamond. But I think Diamond's a smart guy. I mean, he's a Wall Street banker. I don't trust Wall Street bankers any further than I can throw a Wall Street banker. I don't care how much they weigh. But, but I told Rev, I never said he's dumb. I mean, I'll assure you of that. He, he lives in a world of um, eat or, or kill or be killed, win at all costs. I mean, that's his world. And you don't end up where Jamie Diamond ends up unless you kill or be killed unless you are willing to do things that you believe your peers will do. So when it comes to scruples and morality and ethics, I don't know that I take life lessons from Jamie Dimon because of the world he's lived in and the success he has experienced in the world he lives in. But nobody can accuse Jamie Dimon of being dumb. He is a, an incredibly smart and shrewd man. And I think the mea culpa, I call it the Davos man mea culpa, may have been this cat's going to win again. This cat's going to win again. I mean, Biden's out trying to explain and defend Bidenomics. People go to the grocery store and go like, there's no explaining this, man. People put gas in their car. There's no defending this. But Biden is convinced. And I have no idea what their, what their strategy is. But they've got all these eggheads and economic indicators. I mean, it's egghead and economic indicator. It's egghead and economic indicator. And nobody on the Biden team understands affordability. How affordable is this economy? Not very. I can answer that. Not very affordable today. So when Biden goes out and kind of stands on his economic agenda, I think Jamie Dimon says people don't care about eggheads and economic indicators. They care about affordability 
and Trump will win that. So, so do I think Diamond is smart? Yeah. Do I think he's shrewd? Yeah. Do I think he's beginning to try and get back in Donald Trump's good graces? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Take a break. He, he would be smart. Well, I mean, and he is smart. Yeah. I mean, nobody's saying Jamie Diamond is, is, is dumb. I mean, you can say he's a lot of things. I'll assure you, dumb ain't one of them. And he also said that he didn't think it was a good idea for the Biden administration and you know people on that political side to be demonizing 70 million 75 75 million voters across and, this and country. Joe, Joe Curtin even said and uh, but the most interesting thing he said Rev to me was when you have a Biden supporter you don't say hey why are you supporting Biden why are you supporting Trump? Yep. but but the Trump why are you supporting Trump and basically what they're saying is you ignorant fool why why I mean why won't you do what we're telling you to do and bail Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number Thursday morning around 730. Means that we were visited with our esteemed member of the media, great television senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker is with us. Good morning, sir. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Ken. Hope you're doing well today. Back from Iowa. I was there for a few days. Uh, brutally cold, let me tell you, Ken. Minus 27 with the wind chill. Mm. Uh, so Good to be back in D.C. It's cold here, but not as cold as Iowa. Yeah, it's about 22 or 3 or 4 here, and we're about to stop everything. I mean, if it gets below yeah. 30 degrees in South Carolina, we lose our minds that's anyway. That's brutal cold here. Yeah, that, that's brutal cold here. <laughs> so, so, John, there are a lot of uh, narratives. I mean, if, if I were the Haley camp, I would have a narrative. If I were the DeSantis camp, I, if I were the Biden camp, if I were the Trump. I mean, I get spin. We all understand. What is your takeaway from Iowa? Because I said on the radio show the day, the Friday before, that anything shy of 50% could be spun as a negative for Trump, anything above 50%. I'm not saying that, that it's, it's, it's all a win, but it's, it's going to be hard to say that Donald Trump has diminished his standing as the clear front runner in the Republican primary. I think that's a good read. I, I do. I think that it, if, if it was less than 50%, my, my take on it would have been uh, more than half of those voting in the Iowa caucuses want someone else other than Donald Trump to be the Republican nominee. Uh, but that wasn't the case. It's a little over 50%. Uh, so he's on his way. New Hampshire will be telling if Donald Trump has a similar result in New Hampshire. In my opinion, Ken, it's all over. I, I don't see how Nikki Haley recovers from that. I don't see how Ron DeSantis can recover from that. And uh, uh, to me, uh, I don't know how many of my colleagues would actually be heading down to South Carolina if it's a result like that on Tuesday night. But, John, we don't expect a result that way. I mean, Iowa and New Hampshire, I guess as a Republican, it frustrates me the quirky way that we pick presidents. I tend to believe it's consultant-driven. You know, you make a lot of money if you stay in Iowa. You make a lot of money if you go to New Hampshire. You make a lot of money when you come down to South Carolina. It's just, it's, it's almost... I don't know you're trying to trick voters. That's an overstatement. But Iowa is unique. New Hampshire is unique. I don't want to say South Carolina will be, you know, where America really tells us what they think about the Republican primary. But I don't know that we still know, John. I mean, we know Trump's the front runner. There is no denying that. But we don't know if his nomination is inevitable. Is that fair? Mm, I think it's inevitable. I, I, I do. <laughs> I do. I must tell you. Uh, you know, at this point, you know, it's also important to keep in mind, you know, as you point out, it is quirky. Uh, Iowa, 15 percent. Think about this number, Ken. Just 15 percent of registered Republican voters actually took part 
in the Iowa caucuses on Monday night. Uh, that is pretty remarkable that such a small group of people are deciding essentially not who our nominee is going to be, but deciding who's going to go forward in this process and, and who's not, uh, you know, who gets their ticket punched for uh, New Hampshire. Uh, but as it relates to South Carolina, that's the real deal. Uh, it's the real deal in terms of the winner of South Carolina typically is the Republican nominee. We've seen this election cycle after election cycle. You think back to 2000 when the first two states were split, when George W. Bush won uh, New, uh, Iowa pretty handily and then John McCain won New Hampshire by 19 points. Uh, things were settled, so to speak, in South Carolina. George W. Bush won that and, of course, went on to win the nomination. Uh, I don't even know if we'll get that far this time, you know, especially if Donald Trump is, you know, racking up a win above 50 percent like that Boston Globe that came out yesterday indicates could be the case. Uh, but there are an, uh, more registered voters who are independents in New Hampshire than our registered voters who are either Republicans or Democrats. That's why Nikki Haley, with her centrist message, has a good shot in New Hampshire. John, do we have any idea on the time frame of these legal challenges? I mean, Trump leaves a political rally, goes to a courtroom. He leaves a another rally, goes to another courtroom. And as crazy as this sounds, it doesn't seem to be hurting him. Do we have any idea what moment in time Trump could step into a courtroom, the public pay closer attention, and a lot is at stake or at risk? Well, that criminal trial related to election interference here in Washington, D.C., really does pose a huge challenge for Donald Trump uh, in terms of winning back the White House. Uh, You know, polls, established polls, you know, I don't put I don't put my credence in every poll that comes down the road, but, you know, established polls have indicated that uh, Americans would be troubled if Donald Trump was convicted of a, a federal crime. And uh, that uh, particular criminal case here in Washington, D.C., right now scheduled to start on March the 4th. I don't know if it's going to start on March the 4th because of a, a number of delays that may happen, but it's going to happen in 2024. It's going to happen before the November presidential election. That, to me, poses the biggest uh, risk to Donald Trump in terms of winning back the White House. John, what do you make of the negotiations or the meetings, the conversations between the Biden White House congressional leaders? We're hearing government shutdown again, raising the debt ceiling again, Ukraine, Israel, immigration. Uh, Where are we exactly in the negotiations between congressional leaders and the Biden White House? Well, there are two different things that are being negotiated. One is preventing a government shutdown. I think that we're, we're in good shape as far as that is concerned. Uh, and essentially, they're going to kick the can down the road uh, and can keep the government funded through early March. Uh, and then we'll confront the same problem again. That's what uh, can we pay our our elected leaders to do, just kick the can down the road here, to, here in Washington, D.C. The other uh, aspect of things, the other piece of legislation is that supplemental bill uh, for security funding, for military assistance for Ukraine. And contained in that bill uh, will be. Uh, changes in U.S. immigration policy. That's why congressional leaders were at the White House yesterday. That's what they were discussing. Uh, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said that uh, there has been progress that has been made. He said he gives a chance for a bill at greater than 50 percent, and he said he's never felt that way uh, during the course of these ongoing negotiations. Uh, the House Speaker Mike Johnson also said that progress uh, has been made and is being made. So uh, I think that that would 
uh, be beneficial in terms of policy, for sure. It would be beneficial in terms of our policies uh, if, indeed, there were changes in terms of U.S. immigration policy with the record number of migrants coming to the U.S.-Mexico border. But I also think it would be beneficial uh, for Joe Biden to get a handle on things because that is a major issue for uh, a significant percentage of voters, uh, the issue related to immigration. And so if he can get his, his handle on that, that would be helpful to him. John, I'm, I'm a, a good old country boy from South Carolina. There are a lot of me. And the Biden administration, and I want to get your take on this because I'm very interested. I think this is a central theme of who wins in November. The Biden administration are trying to defend their record on the economy, and I'll be a little bit disrespectful here, with eggheads quoting economic indicators. I believe it comes down to affordability. What do you think the Biden strategy is when Trump goes after them on the failures of the economy with inflation and the debt and whatnot. I mean, both parties are guilty of, of not tending to the debt. You know that. I know that. But it seems to me the Biden administration are using somewhat of an academic way in trying to defend their record on the economy, and it's going to be hard to sell that when people are paying so much more to live their normal lives. Well, I think a lot of it is dependent on things that you know we can wrap our heads around. You know, how much does it cost to fill up your gas tank? Uh, what's your, your bill when you go to Costco? Those are the things that people, you know, can wrap their heads around. They understand that. Um, you understand what your your budget is. Uh, and if those bills are going down, that's beneficial to the incumbent. If those bills are going up, uh, that is not beneficial to the incumbent. And then all that works against Joe Biden. Uh, so uh, that to me is is the indicator. Forget about, you know, all the other ones that come out uh, the first Friday of every month, like unemployment and uh, where we are in terms of GDP. The one that matters the most is the ones that, that we feel uh, when we go uh, doing the things that we need to do for our families. Uh, that, I think, will uh, ultimately determine whether Joe Biden wins re-election. Very well explained. John, thank you for your time, sir. Have a great day and great weekend. Stay warm. Yes, you too, Ken. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Great television senior national editor. White House correspondent John Decker with us. John mentioned uh, some of the trial. I mentioned some of the trial. There are two, um, I don't know, two articles. I know it's about six articles. I've compiled them into two separate articles. Since John kind of led into the D.C. trial that we think Trump could have a lot of trouble with, I want to take a break and come back and try to, in good old boy, non-academic fashion, walk you through, ah, a less legal interpretation of what could or could not lie ahead for Donald Trump. Back in a few. We're talking about Trump is in a political rally one day, a courtroom the next day, a political rally one day, the courtroom the next day. There is a Supreme Court decision. Forget immunity for a second. I mean, that's the one that a lot of the media are talking about. The reason this is not making headlines is it does not have anything to do with Donald Trump now, but it will. Joseph W. Fisher versus the United States is a is a is a court decision that the Supreme Court has decided. Well, it's a case that the Supreme Court has decided to hear. Um, they decided in December. I would imagine they'll hear this case sometime in February. Fisher is a defendant 
in January 6th. Um, Joseph Fisher is arguing that he has been charged, incarcerated, convicted on a statute that should not apply, a law that should not apply. Now, once again, the case does not explicitly mention Trump, but Fisher's verdict will have an enormous impact or effect on some of the charges Jack Smith has against Donald Trump, obstruction of um, a proceeding, uh, conspiring against the United States, some of the more serious charges. I mean, those would be the ones that get your attention, obstructing an official proceeding, conspiring against the United States. But but what Fisher is arguing or what his lawyers are arguing is whether prosecutors and the Department of Justice have improperly used, uh, I think, a 2001 or 2002 law that was originally aimed at curbing financial crimes during the Enron scandal. I mean, it's Sarbanes-Oxley. I mean, it really goes to some of the legislation created, some of the statutes that were um, made law as a result of Enron, and they didn't really know what to do with Skilling and Lay and some of the other uh, bad guys with the Enron scandal. Now, now Smith is interpreting the the language in Sarbanes-Oxley. He's taking a very broad interpretation. I mean, he's basically saying that the people who shredded documents at Enron obstructed an official proceeding, a lawsuit to find out exactly what happened and who did what. Smith has taken liberties, I think. I mean, the courts will decide, but he basically is using that same Sarbanes-Oxley to prosecute a defendant named uh, Joseph Fisher, and if the court decides with Fisher, it would call into question the use of that law, not only against January 6th defendants, but also Donald Trump. That's why Trump has, and once again, not a lot of coverage because Joseph Fisher is not a not a household name. Um, two of the charges are obstruction of an official proceeding and conspiring against the United States. Those crimes, um, Smith says, are covered under the, I mean, it is a relatively new criminal statute that governs financial disclosures, and that's what the Sarbanes-Oxley Act did. Um, it was enacted following, once again, the Enron scandal. About 150 of the 300 charges or defendants against the January 6th perpetrators is under the purview of this law. I mean, this is what they're using as, as a reason to um, to bring charges against Fisher and about 300 other def- defendants in in, um, in, in the, the events of January 6th. So, so the defendant, Joseph Fisher, is arguing that, and this is his language, obstruction of an official proceeding as part of the Sar- Sarbanes-Oxley Act was only meant to apply to financial crimes, similar to the ones that produced the law in the first place, right? I mean, Enron. And not as broadly as the Justice Department has used it in some of these January 6th cases. I read the language. I mean, last night I went back and read some of the language, and here it is. I mean, verbatim. You ready? Whoever corruptly obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. Now, now the statute's language does not clearly specify that only certain kinds of obstructions qualify. 
Fisher's arguing, yes, it does. Because in the preceding um, language, it says, and Smith has left this out. When he brings the, the you know discovery and he brings his lawsuit to the DOJ, he leaves out the preceding language that says, whoever corruptly alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or any other object with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding has engaged in a criminal act. So we know what that says. I mean, the Sarbanes-Oxley is for financial crimes. So if they're about to charge Josh for financial crime, and Josh says, hey, shred all the documents, but burn all the material. I mean, you've obstructed the proceeding. They don't have the paperwork. I mean, you had all these accountings that, that, that would prove their case. They don't have that anymore. So you, in essence, by mutilating, destroying, burning, concealing, altering a document, you changed their ability to advance an official proceeding. Now, now, if you add that preceding language, now, once again, Smith has left out that part. In his case, he basically, I'm going to use as a second part of the statute, but he left out the part where it says, corruptly alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or any other object with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability. They didn't do that. I mean, nobody on January 6th did that. We can argue whether they have uh, obstructed a proceeding. I mean, that, we can argue that. I mean, that there's no question about it. They they tried to delay the inevitability of a certification of the election. Um, the Fisher argument is that the two provisions must be read together. I mean, that, that's what the court will decide. Is one provision in Sarbanes-Oxley exclusive of the other, or can you not throw the baby out with the bathwater? I mean, do you have to take one conclusive of the other or inclusive of the other now, 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 under his reading, Smith is going to be required to prove that the defendants corruptly altered a record as a threshold matter before they can be charged, once again, more broadly with obstructing a congressional proceeding. And if the court says you can't read this part of Sarbanes-Oxley without including that part of Sarbanes-Oxley, they could rule that Smith has no legal authority to bring these charges. And if he has no legal authority to bring these charges, I mean, Politico calls it a sleeping giant of a case. I mean, everybody's talking about the cases Trump is associated with. I mean, that would that stand former president, current front runner, Donald Trump. I mean, of course, if he's in a courtroom, everybody's paying attention. This is a trial that Trump has nothing to do with today that is more monumental than any trial he does have things to do with. Joseph Fisher could be a footnote in American history, unlike many other footnotes in American history. And Fisher apparently has some funds and resources, and he's hired a lawyer, and he says, look, they're charging me under this statute, but they're not considering the statute in its entirety. Sarbanes-Oxley was basically because Enron. And remember Enron, it was a fraudulent company, but they weren't making any money. They were hiding and lying and stealing and cheating, and they shredded documents. And they mutilated information. They destroyed information. They hid information. And, and Smith has taken that part out of the equation. But they did obstruct a proceeding. I mean, the, the FBI and DOJ are trying to investigate Enron. They need all of this evidence. Where's the evidence? Put the evidence in the car, boy. You know where the evidence is? It's in the shredder. It's in the burn barrel. What do you mean it's in the burn barrel and shredder? You can't do that. That's obstructing a proceeding. It is. 
There's no doubt about it. Nobody on January 6th mutilated a document. Nobody on January 6th had a burn bow. But he's taken a very broad interpretation of a particular part of the statute. And I'm telling you, the majority of justices on that court today are textualist. And they're going to read that statute in its entirety. And they're going to basically rule on Fisher's side. And if they do, four of those charges in the Trump trial of the most important obstruction of justice conspiring against the United States. I mean, who wants their president obstructing an official proceeding? Who wants their president conspiring against the United States? Don't sound bad to me, but the majority of Americans <laughs> wouldn't want that. But if the court rules in Fisher's favor, I think the charges against Trump in D.C. are dismissed. I don't think they have standing. I don't think you can take a part of a statute and apply it without taking the statute in its entirety. That's the best I can do at giving you kind of the good old boy take on lawfare. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. I'm trying to follow what you're saying here, and you say sleeping giant. Um, but what, when you boil it down, I mean, what does it mean? Well, How I mean, can the, it affect? The, the, the question is, are... Is Jack Smith improperly using a 2002 law originally aimed uh, curbing financial crimes, Enron scandal, to prosecute the January 6th defendants? And if he is, what will the court's opinion um, be? So what Jack Smith has done is say is said basically, hey, there's this law that governed financial disclosures and financial crimes known as Sarbanes-Oxley, I want to use half that. I want to use the half that says, and this is the language in the in the law, obstruction of an official proceeding um, is intended not just to apply to financial crimes, but presidential elections as well. And I don't think the courts will allow him. I'm not saying the courts will decide one way or another. But I don't think they'll allow him to pick and choose parts of the statute that advantage his side without including the second part. You ready? Whoever corruptly obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so shall be filed or imprisoned in prison not more than 20 years. Um, okay. I mean, that, that makes sense. I mean, if you're Jack Smith, that makes sense. But he failed to say that the next Senate said, Whoever corruptly alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or other object with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in the official proceeding engages in a criminal act. I don't think you can take half a statute. I mean, you're talking about misinterpretation. When you add the second part of the statute, it's clear what they meant. This is to deal with financial crimes. This is to deal with a government investigation into a business, and the business destroys, alters, uh, mutilates information that could be um, uh, to the advantage of, of the prosecution. Now, now, what does that change? You asked me during the break, okay, what does that change? I mean, it changes the charges. I mean, Smith can charge with trespassing. He can charge with um, loitering. He can charge with... I mean, give me an abstract. Uh, vandalism. Yeah, vandalism. I mean, there you go. But but vandalism, trespassing, doesn't care 18-year sentences. Right. He's tried to find the most aggressive way to punish people that were there. They were trespassing. 
They were vandalizing. You know it and I know it. I mean, there's no denying that some people there trespassed. Some people there vandalized. You know what happens? You pay a $250 or $500 fine and go about your merry way. You don't go to jail for 18 years. But that was not good enough for Pelosi and Smith and the Democrats. And really the establishment. Let's teach these hayseeds a lesson. They think we're going to charge them with trespassing or vandalism. Oh, no. No. We're going to put them in prison for 18 years. And the way we do it is to interpret half of the Sarbanes-Oxley law and leave out the other half. And I don't believe the Supreme Court will stand for it. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, the media is good at telling you things you already know. I mean, they'll give their spin, their accounting. I like to find things that they aren't talking about. We aren't discussing. And I do believe this Joseph Fisher case could eventually become a big deal. And here's, I, I told Rev this morning, my frustration, I mean, this is a political article. And Politico ain't no big fan of America First. I'll assure you of that. They're not a conservative website. They're not in bed with the Republican Party. But they did a great job on this particular story of giving you the facts. I mean, this is not to try and incriminate Trump. This is not to try and let Trump off the hook. I mean, this is reporting. And it, and it warms my heart every now and then. I've done this 12 years. And when I began, you could find legitimate reporting out there here and there. I mean, it's always had a liberal leaning, but I mean, okay. I mean, the majority of journalists are liberal. I can live with that. Um, but they kind of checked that at the door. They weren't activists. They weren't a propaganda arm. They weren't an extension of the DNC. They've morphed in, into that. But when I read this article on Politico trying to explain the problem Smith may have in this Fisher case, it, it kind of made me feel good about, okay, there are people out there capable and at times intentional in giving the American people journalism at its best. I'm not a journalist. I'm an opinion monster. I mean, I don't profess to give journalistic reports on X, Y, or Z. I am an opinion monster. And my opinion is this conservative court may rule in Fisher's favor, and Smith has a lot of problems with some of the charges against Trump in the D.C. court. I mean, that's my, once again, that's my opinion, but my opinion is based on a very fair journalistic effort in Politico that are becoming more and more infrequent um, than in previous days and years. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chair and co-chair of the National Party, is with us. Good morning, sir. How are you? Man, I'm doing well and staying warm. How are you? How was Iowa? I mean, I know it was freezing but cold, but, I mean, <laughs> how cold is that cold, Drew? Well, well, you know, I couldn't tell you because I tried to go. I get on my flight in Columbia. I get a text from the airline that your connecting flight has been canceled. I land in Charlotte, had to get a delayed flight to Chicago. My other end got canceled, got there. I went through four cancellations before it was over, and at 7.30 that night, I said, well, can you get me back to Columbia? And they said, yeah. So I ended up traveling the country and sleeping in my own bed that night. <laughs> well, we're waiting on <laughs> so those electric planes. Maybe once we get those electric planes, everything will be, everything will be hunky-dory. Those, those, those lithium-ions flow much better through the electrolytes when it's 10 degrees below zero. So we'll, we'll see how that exactly. works out in the future. What do you make of Iowa, Drew? You weren't there. You didn't freeze to death. But you're well aware of the right. results. What is your takeaway from Iowa? Well, I mean, it's, yeah, I think it's fair to say that it's what we pretty well expected. You know, as you look at polls, you know, an individual poll is, as they say, a snapshot in time. 
Uh, a trend of polls is something different. Uh, you know, that they tend to, over time, back one another up. You know, some are outliers here and there. Uh, but, you know, when you average them together, and the realpolitics.com uh, website does a good job of uh, taking reputable polls and averaging those together. And I'd say when you look at what the average of the polls was, uh, it was, you know, on the difference or the result, rather, was only a couple of points different here or there. Uh, you know, you had an overwhelming uh, win for former President Trump, which was pretty well expected. Uh, when you got down to the title races, you know, the thing to remember about Iowa is it is a caucus, you know, and not a primary. So caucuses tend to reward campaigns that have a little bit of a better organizational edge to them because a caucus is basically an organizational meeting. Uh, you're not just going to the polls and casting a ballot. You go to a meeting and you're sitting there for an hour, sometimes two hours, uh, having conversations back and forth, trying to win supporters from other campaigns to your candidate, et cetera. So it's an organizational effort. And, you know, DeSantis, I think, you know, had a very good organizational effort in Iowa uh, versus, uh, say, I think Governor Haley and uh, Vivek and uh, some of the others. So that paid, you know, dividends for him. Uh, he was able to come in second, as we know. Um, yeah, but again, I think from the polling standpoint, it's pretty well what we expected. So what would you see in New Hampshire? I mean, I'm looking at the RCP average. New Hampshire has Trump at 46, 3, Haley at 33, 5. Christie's at 12. Obviously, Christie's no longer a candidate. We believe the majority of that vote goes to Haley. We believe the majority of the Vivek vote goes to goes to Trump. We're 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 narrowing the field as we expected we would. But but what do you think's in store for all of us in New Hampshire? Yeah, well, I, I think again, uh, you know, and I'd like to see some more updated polls. Uh, I, I would particularly pay attention whenever you get another poll coming from uh, Trafalgar. Uh, which is run by Robert Cahaley, who's a South Carolina native, by the way. He does great polling work. His poll actually nailed the results in Iowa, I think, within one point, as I recall. So he didn't actually. Yeah, he told me. He told me over and over and over again, about 20, <laughs> about 20 texts that day. Every time the national media gave him credit, he made sure we all knew about it, Drew. I'm sure you can relate to that. <laughs> so. So I would love to see a couple of more polls there. I would, you know, expect to see things probably within the trend. But, you know, as you know, uh, Christie's out of the race and Vivek's out of the race. So you want to see some polls that don't have those guys in the mix. Uh, I think what you just described a minute ago in terms of where some of those supporters may go is probably accurate. Uh, don't know how that will affect uh, DeSantis' campaign uh, in New Hampshire. Uh, you know, and the other thing to remember about New Hampshire, you know, they're primary just like we are here in South Carolina. Their electorate is, you know, I would say not as conservative as voters here in South Carolina. Uh, you know, we tend to have a better and a broader, more nationally representative mix of conservative voters here in our state. You know, whether social conservatives, fiscal conservatives, you know, uh, those who appreciate the military, I think on a percentage basis, we've got the most retired military of any state in the country here in South Carolina. Uh, and as you think about populist conservatives, you know, so we've got that broader mix. And on the issues tend to be, you know, anywhere from five to ten points, probably more conservative or taking the conservative position on an issue uh, than, say, a state like New Hampshire or, uh, you know, in some cases, well, let's say, you know, Nevada, who's going to be up next after uh, New Hampshire. Uh, you know, so that electorate there is a little bit different. Uh, that probably is a better play in field uh, on a percentage basis anyway for uh, former Governor Haley. Yeah, but again, we'll see. Man. Right now, uh, we'll see who's got the lead in the polls there. I don't expect any radical swings, and I don't really see any issues or anything that would change things. You know, these campaigns tend to be moved by events, 
presidential campaigns usually are driven by events. And the biggest event that we have seen in the last, you know, what, six months to a year has really been things that you've been talking about, and that is these unfair charges against former President Trump, this double standard of justice that we're seeing, you know, in courtrooms around the country. I think, what is it, five lawsuits that they have against him in different venues now. And in a lot of ways, the lawsuits and everything pertaining to the lawsuits have been the campaign, have driven the campaign, have, uh, you could say, taken most of the oxygen out of the room for other candidates, you know, with the coverage of these different events in the courtroom, back and forth, et cetera. Uh, and that makes it hard, you know, for other candidates to get out there and get notice and so forth. So uh, I don't see anything else changing that narrative uh, that would, uh, you know, drastically alter the results as we're seeing or, you know, how we've seen the polls go. Drew, I believe, and, and who am I to believe, but I have an opinion about everything, um, and I get paid to have an opinion about, about nearly everything. <laughs> but but it seems to me, I mean, the national media is trying to spin this that, Half the GOPers don't want Donald Trump to be president. That's not the truth. Half the voters don't want him to be the nominee. We'll circle the wagons at some point in time between now and next stop and, and this November. I am concerned when you look at some of the breakdown. Let's hypothetically say it's a two-person race, and I'm being very genetic in general, and Trump is the America First candidate. Nikki's the conservative establishment candidate, and it's 70-30. Do we have any idea how many of the 30 Haley supporters, and I'm being hypothetical, and I and please understand that, but I don't know any other way to, to address this. Do we have any idea how many never-Trumpers? Because Chris Christie has already said, I mean, he was a Republican nominee for president. He said, I'm going to do everything I can to stop Donald Trump from becoming president. Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzing, I mean, the list is fairly long. Do we have any idea what the percentage of Republicans who under no circumstance will bless Donald Trump and, and support Donald Trump as a nominee of the Republican Party? Well, I couldn't stick a percentage on it. I mean, you know, there are always people who are going to have strong opinions about one candidate or another. Of course, you know, maybe you've got a bigger percentage of them who've got strong opinions about former President Trump. Okay, that's fair. Uh, but it's also fair to say uh, that, you know, and I say this as, as a state chairman and someone who's run campaigns before, I will take enthusiastic and cited voters any day of the week over somebody who will just vote for me or vote for my candidate. Why? Enthusiastic and excited people work. They knock doors. They make phone calls. They get the folks standing beside them at church or sitting next to them, you know, at work or so forth to get involved and support. They evangelize, if you will, for the candidate. You can't put a price on that. Enthusiasm is critical. Uh, and we see, we continue to see, you know, an enthusiastic Republican base who's ready to throw Joe Biden out of office. Uh, that is, you know, you can't, again, put a price on that and what it's going to be uh, in terms of value to our nominee once we actually have one. Uh, and when you get to that point, you know, you've got people who will say things now, but once they get to that point and they've got a nominee and they're faced with that A-B proposition, you know, you're either voting for Joe Biden, uh, either actively or passively by not you know, voting in the presidential race, or you're supporting the nominee, whoever the nominee may be. And when you get hit with that stark choice, sometimes, you know, your actions don't match up with your rhetoric and big talk from a couple of months prior. And I've seen that over and over, primary, primary, general election after general election. Not to say you get everybody on board. 
but I'll, I'll, let's put it this way. I'll make a bet with you right now that when you look at polls later in the year, just from the run-up to Election Day, you're going to see when they ask that question about how enthusiastic Republicans are to support their nominee versus Democrats are to support theirs, Republicans will be ahead of Democrats in terms of enthusiasm and excitement. Last question. I'm in the business of confusing people. I don't like to be confused. <laughs> but the Nevada situation has me confused. There is a yeah. Nevada caucus February 8th that Donald Trump yep. is in. There's a Nevada yep. primary February 6th that Nikki Haley is in. Who drank yep. too much bourbon in Nevada <laughs> when, when they made all those rules? So the, the state government, that's the problem. So what happened is uh, Nevada is run by Democrats. They're legislature there, and they passed a law mandating that the parties have a presidential primary, and the state is putting it on. Well, the Nevada Republican Party doesn't like nominating by primary. They nominate by caucus. And they said, well, you can have your stinking primary if you want to. We're running a caucus over here, and that's how we are going to award our delegates to the national convention. So the primary has no bearing on delegates whatsoever. It is basically a beauty contest. Uh, and so, as I recall, uh, former Vice President Pence, his file for the primary, uh, former Governor Haley, maybe one other person, all the other candidates filed to be in the caucus, and the caucus is what awards the delegates. So you've got a primary on Tuesday, February 3rd or 6th, and a caucus on, uh, I think, two days later on a Thursday. Uh, but again, that's where the delegates are going to come from, and that's what matters when it comes to nominating the candidate. So as dishonest as people believe politicians are, when Haley says, I won the Nevada primary, and Trump says, I won the Nevada caucus, they're both telling the <laughs> truth. They would both be telling the truth, and one would have delegates to show for it, and one would you know, just have what, what amounts to a glorified beauty contest. Um, you know, and then they'll come to South Carolina. And here we have a primary. We give delegates on the basis of the primary. If you get one more vote than anybody else, you win all the delegates in South Carolina. We had 50 delegates. Uh, and since 1980, no Republicans have become president of the United States without winning the South Carolina Republican primary. Well explained. Thanks, Drew. Appreciate your time, my man. Yes, sir. Take care. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman, co-chair of the National Party. I mean, Nevada's weird. I mean, the state government got involved and basically said, you know, you don't tell people what to do. We do. And the GOP said, no, these are our voters. We do what we choose to do. So we're having a caucus. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I think it's a very smart strategy on Haley's part. I mean, I'm getting in the one that Trump doesn't get in. I mean, if Trump gets in the caucus, I'm getting in the primary. Right. If Trump gets in the primary, I'm getting, to talk about. I'm getting in the caucus. I can't exp explain this, guys. When someone leaves a political rally, they need to go in the back door to get in a courtroom. You don't need the public seeing you walk in a courtroom. <laughs> but Trump slings the doors open like Josie Wales, and his poll numbers improve. It's the craziest thing in modern American politics. I think, Back, I, I, think I found that poll that John Decker was referring to Boston earlier. Globe poll. Boston Globe poll. And it was released uh, this morning, and it was from the last two days. So it was Tuesday and Wednesday survey. Um, Trump's at 50%. Uh, Haley's at 36 and DeSantis at 6 And that's Boston Globe. Uh, Suffolk University, and NBC10 in Boston. I'm going I'm to age myself. You ready, Josh? In the old dandy Don Meredith days of Monday Night Football, he would very often say, turn out the lights, the party's over. If he hits 50 in New Hampshire, uh, and in the country we say something not quite as proper and polite as that, but um, we're not satellite radio. <laughs> we're terrestrial 
Radio Salt. <laughs> or, or to use. John, I didn't get clearance from Rev with that word. There's good. one word in that saying that yeah. I want to be careful about. And to use John Decker's word, then inevitable <laughs> is his word. I try to be respectful yeah. of the esteemed journalist. Yes, and he said, "No, nah, it's inevitable. <laughs> I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty inevitable." Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I once had a job that I could give someone permission for a point of personal privilege. I mean, I can remember senators standing up, and I, for what purpose does a senator from Lexington rise? A point of personal privilege. And I, I mean, I, I, obviously, I can say, no, you don't get a point of privilege. It's like my job to say. You were, you were well, wearing I mean, the purple robe. I presided robe. over the Senate. Don't misunderstand presiding over running. I mean, the senators ran the Senate. I just presided over the, the affairs. Mike Nunn, um, Florence County Sheriff's Office, has been coming on this show for a pretty good while. I don't know exactly when we started reaching out to law enforcement and um and then them believing it was probably worth engaging our listenership and Mike has done an excellent job of articulating where the sheriff's department believe its priorities need to be what they're doing to get there public service 101 is essential to any community and Mike over the years has done an excellent job of engaging informing advocating for law enforcement and um and I'm proud we've given him um and for a long time Sunday college now somebody else the opportunity but Mike has a unique and interesting story that we've not discussed on the air for years. And I'm talking about, I'm not talking about one or two years. I'm talking about six or eight years. We've not. Um, this week is the 15th anniversary of the miracle on the Hudson. And Mike is one of the however many people that were aboard the plane when it made its emergency landing, had a movie made about it. A lot of coverage has been given to it. But 15 years ago, um, Mike said he heard, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but, uh, impact for uh, something, uh, prepare for impact or something like that. And, um, and I, if Mike will indulge us, I want him to, um, check law enforcement at the door. Cause we know you got all the bad guys under control, but, but I think, mean, I mean, it might, it is a very, I mean, it's one of the most interesting stories that I've ever heard in person. And I got to believe when you got on that plane in New York, you expected to land in Charlotte or Florence or wherever it was. And it didn't go that way. So, so take us back. 15 years ago, you get on that plane in New York City and you're heading back to Charlotte, North Carolina. Sure. Well, you know, I came here to talk about law enforcement. You did? Not this, so, <laughs> and, you know. we, and we have, we have goofed you up. Yep. <laughs> well, that's okay. Um, look, this was a, um, an incredible, uh, story. Um, I, I wish I wasn't part of it, but, uh, but I was, um, uh, so as, as you guys know, 15 years ago, I was a, uh, I was an attorney in a very uh, prominent uh, law firm here in, in Florence. Uh, I was a litigation uh, attorney, made my living in the courtroom. Uh, my primary practice focus was uh, medical malpractice. I represented physicians, hospitals, nurses, and professionals in uh, medical malpractice cases. And so um, as a result of that, I had to travel a lot. And um, I was flying all over the country, uh, you know, uh, preparing cases for trial. Um, a lot of times it necessitated uh, traveling to major medical centers to interview potential expert witnesses, uh, physicians who would testify in these cases, and also taking testimony from uh, opposing uh, expert witnesses. So um, the reason I was in New York on this particular occasion was to uh, take the deposition of a uh, pediatric neurologist who was going to be taking, uh, uh testifying against, uh, my client who was a local physician here. And so, um, 
routine uh, type matter. I flew up the day before, which was the 14th of uh, January. Um, spent the night downtown Manhattan, got up the next morning and uh, uh, went to the deposition, started uh, nine o'clock, uh, excuse me, 10 o'clock. Um, and uh, so um, over the course of the deposition in the morning, you know, you get a sense of how these things are going to work out and how much longer you've got and how much time it's going to take. So um, we took a break and, um, and it was apparent to me that um, I was going to be able to uh, uh conclude uh the deposition and get back to the airport way before my scheduled flight so the typical thing you do is you you book the last flight out so you know you can get home but if circumstances warrant and you can get an earlier flight out well you try and do that so uh during a break i texted my uh my paralegal and i said hey looks like i'm gonna wind up a little early um how about see if you can get me on an earlier flight scheduled to be on the uh, late afternoon flight. So in a few minutes, she texted back and said, yeah, there's one seat left on the three o'clock plane. Do you want it? <laughs> I said, sure. Sign me up. So um, long story short, deposition concluded. I made my way back to LaGuardia and um, uh, was on the, um, on the three o'clock flight. So, um, you know, flight was packed. Um, wasn't a, vacant seat on it. I was sitting in seat uh, 6F, which is a window seat right by the uh, uh, right engine cowl. And um, so push back, um, you know, taxi takeoff was just textbook. It was a beautiful day. I mean, it was like not a cloud in the sky. It was crisp, 22 degrees, air temperature, um, and I'd done this flight multiple times. I mean, I mean, I knew the path, you know, you take out, you go North, uh, North runway, uh, out of LaGuardia. And at some point in time, you, you turn back, uh, in, in South, uh, down the Hudson. That's, that was the, then on to Charlotte. So, um, like I said, taxi and takeoff was just normal, beautiful, great day to fly. I'm looking out the window as I always do. And, you know, all of a sudden, I, I, as I'm looking, I see, looks like something goes into the engine cow. And, uh, and it rocked the plane. And there was a, a off-duty Colgan air pilot sitting next to me. He was deadheading to Charlotte. And I said, you know, I just think we had a bird strike. And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, we'll, we'll probably be headed back to LaGuardia. I said, but the plane can fly on one engine. And, and we'll be fine. Well, as it turns out, what we didn't know is the same thing had happened on the other side, and we didn't have any engine. And so you started to get this sense of, you know, I'm not feeling the typical thrust, you know, the forward movement like you usually do when you're in an airplane, and different sounds, different, you know, and, and it was just really quiet. And you could feel the plane bank as it started to head back uh south and you know you just got this uneasy sense that hey we're 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 losing altitude here this is this doesn't feel right and about that time uh captain Sullerberger comes over the uh loudspeaker and he says this is the captain brace for impact well you know that's certainly not what you want to hear from your pilot 
but uh, that's what we heard. And there was just this silence inside the aircraft. Nobody said anything. There was no engine noise. It was just an eerie silence. And, um, and the plane just continued to lose altitude. And uh, then the uh, flight attendant started saying, brace, brace, head down, brace, brace, head down. Um, they wanted you to crouch and, you know, put your head down, all that kind of stuff. And I thought, well, you know, this is going to be the end. I'm, I'm going to watch this all the way down. <laughs> I'm not going to miss this. So as we further descended down uh, Hudson, I, it was pretty obvious uh, that's where we were going. And, um, you know, at, at certain point in time, I fully expected once we hit the water that the plane would, uh, you know, tumble, shatter, disintegrate, whatever, whatever it was going to do. So didn't really have any expectation of, uh, of surviving. And, um, then the impact came and, uh, you know, it was the most massive deceleration I've ever felt. Felt like the seats were going to be ripped off out of the floor. Everything in the overhead passenger compartments starts flying, you know, all over. And, um, it's just, you know, you think, okay, well, this is it. And then all of a sudden you look up and the plane is floating on the water. Wow. You know, that's pretty amazing. That's not the outcome I was expecting. And, uh, so then, you know, immediately the flight attendants were shouting, evacuate, evacuate. So, um, you know, the nearest, uh, exit was, uh, toward the front of the plane, right behind the bulkhead, you know, they're doors off both sides, the one you came in and the one they bring, uh, supplies and everything on right there. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, it's great. We survived the impact, but we're not going to survive this water. You know, it's, it's cold. This Hudson river, you know, there's, we won't be able to survive it if we have to get in the water. Well, to my surprise, when I got to the bulkhead, um, and made my decision to go left, there was a raft that had deployed out of that exit on both sides of the aircraft. So we're instructed to slide down into the raft and, um, and hopefully wait, you know, to be rescued. And so that's what I did. I slid down into the raft. Now the, the raft had water in it and it was freezing, uh, cold air, 22 degree air temperature. Every time water would splash up on something, it would immediately freeze. So, um, uh, you, you saw all these people coming out on the wing and that's pretty much the iconic photograph that you see is, uh, in the distance, the, the planes floating there and you see all these people out on the wings. Well, I'm not on the wing. I'm in the raft. But the reason that people are on the wing is because the rafts that should have deployed out of both sides of the wings didn't deploy. They should have had rafts. The plane's designed to have rafts that deploy in emergency situations out of those exits 
as well, but they did not deploy. So they had no place to go except out on the wing. Um, and, um, you know, eventually the, um, uh, ferry boats that were in the area, um, made their way to us and, you know, they were empty and nearby and, uh, they were there to, you know, pick us up and, and take us to safety. Uh, the, to, to call it a miracle, um, that all 155 of us survived that is really kind of doing the term miracle of short service. Um, it is no really ex- explanation except, uh, the hand of God, uh, that, um, allowed us, um, to be rescued and, uh, you know, rest of us pretty much history. I think anything I add hmm. distorts the sincerity and real life experience that Mike, um, I mean, I got a million questions. You know me, I've got a million questions and I've asked Mike half a million off the air, but I just felt it was interesting. I mean, you guys have gotten to know Mike a little bit over the years for coming in and talking about law enforcement. I mean, I think getting to know somebody there's stories in all of our lives that define who we are and what we're about and what we believe. And, and I know that, um, to, to Mike's point, you know, that, that's a, um, an affirmation that there, there's a God in heaven. We call it a human miracle, uh, you know, a mechanical miracle. Nah, God, God had a hand in that. You're convinced of that, Mike. Well, you know, it, we're all here for a reason. And, um, you know, we need to, uh, if we don't know the reason, we need to try to stay focused and ask for guidance to figure out what that reason is. And so, uh, you know, I'm blessed to be here, um, you know, as a result of, uh, you know, that the outcome, you know, I've, I've been able to be best man in both of my son's weddings. You know, I've, I've got five incredible grandchildren and I've, I'll have the opportunity to get to know you know, I get to spend more uh, time uh, with my wife that I love and my family. And, uh, you know, it's just been um, an amazing uh, uh, blessing. Well, explain. Thank you, sir. Great to be here. We'll get back to the bad guys next time. Mike comes <laughs> in. I'm, I'll text TJ and apologize to him <laughs> for not doing our official job today. But um, Mike sharing that story I thought was very, very appropriate. Feel even more so today and now. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Miss Lena Butler with the South Carolina Highway Patrol is with us. Good morning, ma'am. How are you? Good morning. I'm Will. How are you? I got a confession to make. I'm not Catholic, but I got a confession to make the law enforcement. <laughs> so on the real, real cold mornings like this morning, I'm normally on a strict time schedule. Mm-hmm. So I get up at a certain time, get my truck at a certain time. The windshield is frozen over. I'm not talking about a little bit of frost. I'm talking about frozen over. I turn the defrost on. When I get a spot about the size of the the bottom of this bottle, I take off and go. I know I'm not supposed to do that, but I know I'm not alone. Are there certain things we need to do in the winter to prepare ourselves for scenarios like that? Exactly. You know, if um if we have frost and if your windshield is frozen over, a good thing to do is get up a little earlier so that you can turn your car on so that your windshield can be defrosted. Also, you know, you can put a blanket over it. And then there's a solution. I'm sure that, you know, several stores sell certain solutions, de-icers, um, if that's the appropriate name. You could also put that on your windshield. But driving with that little small hole 
that is definitely a distraction because you you don't have full view. You know, you're not going to be able to see what's on the side. You can only see. It's pretty much like tunnel vision. You can only see out of that little hole. So that is definitely a distraction. And my suggestion is that you get up earlier to let give your car enough time to warm up or use other measures, you know, but you definitely don't need to drive like that because that is definitely a distraction. Or are there certain things Highway Patrol looks for in winter driving? Well, I mean, obviously ice on the road is one thing, but but if there's no if there's no ice on the road, we tend to drive as we always do. True. Are there certain things you suggest the driving public do in well, winter weather? Well, you know, um, I've got something here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, with uh, below freezing temperatures moving into our state this week, you know, a winter weather emergency kit in your vehicle is a hot commodity. This is something that was placed on our DPS website, on our DPS Facebook page. You know, if you have, um, you need an ice scraper, you know, preparing your car for winter weather, put an ice scraper in your car, a blanket, also bottled water, just in case, you know, you may get stranded, you have some water in your car. And also a first aid kit, jumper cables. Items like these come in handy, even if snow flurries aren't in the forecast. And also, you know, it's never too early to review um, winter weather information. You can also visit our website, which is scdps.sc.gov, and type in winter weather. You know, this will provide great information as to what you need to do uh, to have um, what you need to have during uh, bad weather you know, such as ice and snow. Because snow is something that, you know, we don't get a lot of snow in South Carolina. And a lot of times when we get bad weather, we see a lot of collisions. So on this website, it'll give you information as to things that you can do to keep yourself safe safe on the roadway. Not only you, other motorists as well. You know, on the website, it talks about speed. It talks about, you know, the road conditions. You need to stay alert what to do if your vehicle starts to skid, what to do if you're stuck. So there are a lot of good safe driving tips on that website in which it would be beneficial to review that, you know, because that's something that's going to help us as well as help you. You know, If, if I'm not a member of AAA mm-hmm. and my car, I mean, the cold weather, I mean, it, it shows the weakness in a car. I mean, mm-hmm. it just does. If you have a marginal car, mm-hmm. cold weather will show you. Uh, it, in the country, we say to leave you beside the road. What is, I mean, if you're not a member of AAA, what is the responsibility to, to the Highway Patrol? Are we allowed to reach out to you guys and say, I am a stranded motorist and I believe I'm in harm's way and I think I may cause problems for the driving public? I mean, wh- what do we do in that situation? Of course, of course. You know, you can dial 911. The 911 dispatcher gets you over to our dispatch center and also Star HP. You know, that'll come directly to us, which is Star 47. And, yes, we have a system where if you're stranded, if you're a stranded motorist, you call us, a trooper is going to come out to you, or even ship. You know, we do have assistance for stranded motorists. You know, we can assist you as to, you know, getting you a tow truck. We can also assist with getting you off the highway to a safe safe location. But but utilize the services. That, I mean, I know you guys aren't the, the, the rescue service. Mm-hmm. You aren't the wrecker service. But if we get ourselves in a bad place mm-hmm. and we don't know who to call, we don't have, you know, a, a family or friend that will come get us and owns a, a tow truck business, we're well within our rights. We're not insulting the highway patrol. We're not taking you away from more important things if we reach out to you and say, hey, I'm stranded. I need help. 
Definitely not. No, by all means, you know, that's what we're here for. We're here to assist the motoring public. And if you're stranded, hey, don't hesitate. Reach out to Highway Patrol because someone will come to you to aid you, you know, during that time. We'll explain. Thank you, Mm ma'am. Appreciate you coming in. That's Miss Lena Butler of the South Carolina Highway Patrol. She was not on the plane that landed in the Hudson. No, no but, I wasn't. But she's, that's a very interesting story that, um, that Mike Nunn has. But, um, but, but the, you know, we're, we're heading into, I guess, the coldest weather of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw it's going to be like 16 or 17 a couple of nights, and it's not cold for one day. We're going to have a, a streak here of cold weather. Um, I'll, I'll be a meteorologist for a second. I read a lot about El Nino, and this is some of the, um, the forces of El Nino and some of the colder weather comes a little further down south when El Nino's jet stream operates a certain way. I just know, um, having been raised in the country, mm, people drive marginal cars. And those marginal cars, I mean, I understand it. You only got so much money and things are really expensive. But they get very questionable in this time of year. And and don't don't just think you're okay. The highway patrol is there. And I think Ms. Butler said we're there to help. So if you get yourself stranded beside the road you are not sure you're out the way and you know give them a call they're there to help thank you miss butler thank you as well we'll take we'll take a break we'll be back in just a few moments i'm going to make a statement you would expect me to say i'm gonna make a statement you wouldn't expect me to say the statement i'm expected to say is when i read where california is looking to ban youth football tackle football under the age of 12 well that's california for you but they're not of the sec the big bad (laughs) sec would never consider disallowing a 12-year-old from playing tackle football. The thing you wouldn't expect me to say, I've got two boys. Now, they're much older now. Uh, they're in their 30s. I'm not sure if they came to me and said, Dad, I'm thinking about playing football. I'm not sure what I'd say. And football was a big part of my life growing up. I mean, I played a lot of sports, and it was pretty decent at football. But I don't know about the risk-reward proposition when it comes to playing tackle football at such an early age, Fox News Radio's Tanya J. Powers is not of the SEC. She's in New York, but she's going to give us her take on um, California looking to ban youth tackle football for kids under the age of 12. Tanya, good morning. How are you? And what is the um, what is the take on that? Well, good morning. And by the way, you can take the girl out of the SEC territory, but you can't take the SEC out of the girl. That's what I'm talking about. See, I knew I knew because you just, had told us where you come from, where you hail from, and I, and I, and I knew what I, you're not a New Yorker, but rather a um, an SEC girl. So, so what do you? I mean, but 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 obviously, I have a personal opinion. You have one, but California is is legally trying to ban kids under the age of 12 from playing tackle football. Well, let, okay. There's a there's some there's some movement on this, and so let me get you up to date. So the proposal was to gradually ban tackle football for kids under 12 by 2029. Um, the governor has come out and said that he would not sign the bill if it gets to his desk. He said he was concerned about kids' safety, but he didn't feel that an outright ban was the way to go. Um, because of this, late yesterday, the author of this proposal, uh, this proposed ban on tackle football for kids under 12, said he would not bring it up for a vote. At this point, uh, before that, it had only gotten out of legislative committee. It was potentially going to be voted on in the state assembly before the end of the month. But because, you know, now the governor has said he's not supporting it, 
the author of the bill has said, okay, we're, we're not going to bring it up for a vote. So it's basically, you know, a non-starter at this point. Um, the, you know, here's the, a couple of things I did find out while I was looking into this story. There's already a law on the books in California that regulates youth tackle football. Um, it was signed by Newsom in 2021. And what it does is limits teams to just two full contact practices per week of not more than 30 minutes each during the regular season. It also requires youth tackle football coaches to have training on concussions or other head injuries. Um, the, the, I think the thought was that the with this potential ban um, was to have had kids play flag football until they were 12, and then that would give them about three years of playing tackle football before they got to high school. That is so very well explained. Tanya, thank you for your time and clearing the air. I mean, I understood the other, but you, you made, uh, I mean, you, 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 you explained it in a way that I hadn't understood uh, what California had done. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. Um, I've got a theory. You ready? I always have a theory. I'm not as concerned about kids under the age of 12 playing football as I am over the age of 12. Kids under the age of 12 aren't big, strong, and fast enough on average. I mean, of course there are the oddities, the, 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 you know, I don't want to say the freaks, that's unfair, but the, um, the kids that develop quicker than, than other kids, that's always the case. When kids get to be bigger, stronger, and faster, that's when injuries concern me. I mean, that's when serious injuries, in other words, when two 16-year-old kids collide with one another and they're 165 or 70 or 80 pounds, I'm more concerned about an injury there than two 11-year-old kids that weigh 90 pounds each. You see what I'm saying? I'm at inertia and mass and velocity and uh, energy. and all. I mean, I, I don't want to get into that. I mean, I don't want to, I certainly don't want to embarrass Einstein and some of his, um, <laughs> some, oh, yeah, because that's what would happen. Yeah. I mean, you know, mass and energy and velocity. Right. Anyway, yeah. um, but, but I, I've always <laughs> said I'm more concerned when they get big, strong and fast enough and the collisions get violent enough. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, the, the, the Republican in me says, well, I mean, if you're concerned about the risk, don't play. I mean, I get it. That's a personal choice. And if you're concerned about the risk and you think it's too risky, then don't, don't play. Um, we're learning a lot about concussions. We're lear- learning a lot about so- some of the consequences of having a series of concussions. And I know it's changing because I would have never had that conversation. I mean, I'm, I'm an older parent now. My kids are, I mean, my baby girl's a junior in college. My boys are in their thirties. So, so we didn't have this discussion, but if I were 30 and my kid was 10, I mean, I, I would begin thinking about, do I want him to play football or not? And I think there's legitimacy to both sides of that equation. Um, I've said it before and I'll say it again, Rev. Football to me is a microcosm of life. I mean, it's winning, it's losing, it's, it's, um, it's the exhilaration of winning. It's the heartbreak of losing. It's getting your ass handed to you a time or two. It's, it's dominating in a particular quarter of a game. Everything goes your way. Um, you know, you you think you're all that because for a moment or two you are, and that is unbelievably exhilarating. And then the other side of it is, you know, um, you break the huddle and the guy in front of you is just better than you are. And you got to fight his better than you are, but for 60 minutes and that ain't much fun, but life will throw you those sorts of situations. And I've always said, I love baseball. I like basketball, golf and tennis are okay. But football, to me, 
was kind of a test of manhood and where I come from. If you didn't play football, eh, mm, something must be missing with you. You see where I'm headed? <laughs> oh, yeah. But it, it was it was kind of a testament to masculinity, yes. and we celebrated <laughs> Speaking masculinity of someone who then. didn't play football. Well, but I get it. I understand it. It ain't for everybody. I mean, it's not. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's unnatural for two fairly athletic people to try and intentionally run into one another. In most of our life, we avoid big, fast things, don't we? And Try. football says, no, he thinks he's bigger and faster than you are. You think you're bigger, faster, stronger than he is. So like two rams in the wild, let's decide it. Oh, but that's not natural. And I do believe there's reason to be concerned about post-concussion syndromes and what happens to the human brain, um, you know, after a series of those. And um, I mean, there, there are a lot of players now that say they would, they would do the same thing I'm doing. They're talking about... Got a 10-year-old kid. I mean, I've heard Brett Favre. Who's a bigger cowboy hillbilly and hayseed than Brett Favre? And he says, you know, if my 10-year-old, if I had a 10-year-old and he came to me and asked about football, I would, I'd think about, wow. I mean, we've learned a lot about what those collisions do. And, I mean, we called it your bells rung. I mean, I remember playing in North Myrtle Beach one night. And the guy that lined up beside me on defense got his bell rung. Concussion? We didn't know what that was. He got his bell rung. And he's walking off to the other sideline. He is so disoriented that he doesn't know which sideline to go. He missed a play and right back in the game he went. Today he'd be in concussion protocol. <laughs> We'd probably mm. put him in the hospital for six months and um, and perform three or four major surgeries. And I, I'm not dismissing. I mean, obviously, we probably overreacted. But, I mean, I remember him stumbling to the other side. No, nah, man, you go, we're, we're in the red jerseys. We're over here. We're over here. He goes on the sideline. You might they, better sit out of play. Well, I mean, that's exactly what he did. I mean, the, co the coach or trainer, I don't remember. I mean, the coach had a cigarette in his hand. That's when I played. I mean, the coach is smoking a damn cigarette on the sideline. And he takes some kind of smelling sauce and, you know, in front of his nose. Like, ah, ah, I'm good to go now. And back in the game, he went. And, and, and less than a minute ago, he's walking to the other sideline because he doesn't know he's in the world. And the coach... Outs a cigarette, steps it on the ground, and he'll smell this real quick. <laughs> and back in the game he goes. Eight four three six six one. Oh, the good old days. Oh yeah. And Josh, you wonder why I'm so like I am. What a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> what a mystery. Let's go to the phone. Bobby in Hartsville has been on hold for quite a while, so thanks for holding, Bobby. Hey, that's no problem. I know. I know the drill, man. I, I, I wasn't doing anything important, so <laughs> that's for um, sure. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Just about the last topic. I got another question, but that last topic you was talking about, um, we probably won't be able to see it. But uh, of course, one day you all you'll have is a head coach, uh, a field full of uh, robots playing, and instead of assistant coaches, you'll just have some uh, IT techs, some maintenance people, and stuff like that playing. On the on the team, the artificial but, uh, intelligence version of football. That's right. That's yeah. right. Um, the question I had for you is this: um, I, I know I hear I don't listen to a lot of other stations except this one, and I don't um, watch uh, any television hardly, no cable channels or local channels anyway. And but this station, I'm hearing Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley all the time. I'm assuming she's on others throughout the state. My question to you is. Um, What's her audience? Who is she trying to convince? Or is she trying to change minds? Because I know y'all don't want to lose. I'm not trying to get. Uh, I'm not trying to take her off your station. But pretty much everybody I hear call in. There's no chance for them voting for Nikki Haley. So 
What's all that about? Thank you, Bobby. Appreciate it. I mean, there's a couple of angles. Uh, one angle is you live to fight to the end. I mean, you give it all you've got for as long as you can. Nikki is not, I'll say it this way. Nikki's fundraising is better than her polling. She is, I mean, she has become the darling of the establishment. We know that pays well. I mean, being the the anti-Trump darling of the establishment means you'll always have money. There'll always be a motivated group of people with enormous amounts of resources that will spend whatever it takes to give you the best chance possible to win the election. That's her strategy. I mean, she's got plenty of money. You can't go buy, you know, beer with it. So why not buy radio ads and television ads and, and turnout machines and whatnot? Um, a little bit of me says that is in play, and Nikki doesn't want to embarrass herself in South Carolina. I mean, I think if she makes a decision to continue her candidacy to South Carolina, you can't embarrass yourself. You can't get beat 70-30, 65-35. I mean, 60-40 is bad as a former governor of your home state. I think that's where, where we're headed, but, but a lot of this is consultant-driven. I mean, the consultant convinces you. If the consultant goes to Nikki Haley today and says, Nikki, we have no chance to win, you know what Nikki does? She doesn't pay him anymore. So the consultants are always trying to convince you, you can win. Nikki, you can win. Forget the polls. I mean, this, you know, the polls aren't picking up this anti-Trump sentiment, Nikki, and they're real good at it. They're so good at it, they buy Gulf Streams. I mean, that's how good consultants are (laughs) at convincing you that you've got a chance to win. Nikki Haley, you ready? has zero chance to win the primary. She doesn't have zero chance to be the nominee because Trump has some issues. And there's a debate. I don't think it's a big debate, but some do, that there could be a a conviction that disqualifies Donald Trump from running for president. I think that's a reach, but some believe that. I read something last night, very scholarly, that strongly suggested a charge out there somewhere could convince... The Republican Party to disqualify Donald Trump or some constitutional law and interpretation of the Constitution says Trump could be disqualified. Nikki's not going to win the primary, but consultants need to be paid. And consultants convince candidates that you've got a better chance than you really do. That's the nature of the business. That's the way the machine works. Um, Is it her funding or is it political action committees? I've not heard the ads. I mean, I don't listen to the ads. I don't hear the ads. I'm always trying to put the next segment together when we're taking a break. It's not piped in here. Um, so I'm, I'm not familiar at all with some of the other, some of the other ads. But, uh, but somebody did say she made a big media buy in South Carolina. I mean, if she's a Republican running for president and South Carolina's about to have their primary, she's not advertising on sports stations or country music stations as much as she would be on politically centric talk radio. That's where the audience is. Uh, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why, why do you advertise on conservative radio? That's where the voters are. So it's, um, I mean, it's smart strategy, but I would argue the majority of, and I'm not in the room. I mean, I don't have any idea what those conversations are like. I have been in a room where some of those conversations have been had, and it's normally a consultant can try to convince a candidate you can win when the candidate just can't win. I mean, there's no way to beat Trump in a primary. Can he be disqualified? I guess. There's some liberal interpretation of the Constitution that could disqualify Trump. I don't think that's on the table. Some do. 
But Donald Trump is going to win the Republican primary by a country mile. Is it over after New Hampshire? Is it over after Nevada weird situation? Is it over after South Carolina? Over after Super T? I don't know. I mean, I would argue, I try to respect John Decker a little bit this morning when I said, well, some say it's inevitable. And John Decker kind of surprised Revit and said, nah, it's inevitable because I didn't think Decker would go there. I thought Decker right. would say, well, I mean, you know, some polls say this and some polls say that because a lot of these people are trying to talk themselves into believing that Trump's not going to be the nominee. But I mean, that's just not, that's farcical. That's crazy. That's nonsense. By what margin is the biggest question. But if Nikki's got a lot of money, and I'm talking about her political action committees and the people that have donated to her campaign, if she's got a lot of money, she may know she has no chance to win, but every dollar you spend may be worth a third of a point. And if you cannot lose by 65-35, but rather 55-45, you may live the fight another day, a day being another election cycle in this time, in this case. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. I'm still laughing about you talk about the football stories and the coach standing on the sidelines smoking He's, <laughs> during the game. Sure, absolutely. He was on the sideline with a cigarette in his hand. We had this trick play. I guess it was, I mean, those well, now, were the old days, right? You, you want to know how politically incorrect the world was, Josh? Uh-oh. Here, here it How's is. that? We'll probably get in, in all sorts of trouble. Um, <laughs> we had a trick play called the Jap Draw. Well, obviously, it was a trick play. It was a surprise play. I mean, remember Pearl Harbor, right? Uh, I mean, we were surprised at Pearl Harbor. And and, and a a particular coach, I won't call his name, he's dead now, and I loved him to death. He was a a dear friend of mine and and remained a friend of mine until when he died. I can see him today standing on the sideline with that cigarette in his hand (laughs) telling the head coach, jap it, jap it. I mean, that's the way he said, call the jap draw. And I remember thinking to myself, it's not a surprise play if you run it every play. But, but it was called Jap Draw because the Japanese surprised us at Pearl Harbor, and we were trying to surprise the other team with this play. And um, I mean, that's how politically incorrect the world was. And I'd give anything, anything to return to that existence. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You're on. Hey, guys. I have a few whys. Um, my uh, white-educated leftist uh, non-Christian clients are all for Nikki Haley. That also, I saw your video with J.B. Dobbin. Then I saw a video of a black rapper. Then I saw a video of Michael Moore. None of those three people would be people that would generally like any of us. But they all sort of, uh, now, J.B. Dobbin had his thing a little more, uh, I guess, more eloquently. But Michael Moore and and the black rapper, their thing was, the black rapper said, if you're a black man in America today, you need to vote for Trump to give the giant FU to the establishment, i.e. cathedral. All of the old, the, the, the establishment, the, 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 the system that has screwed the black man over for hundreds of years. And he blamed the government. He said, get after the government. He blamed the government. And he blamed the government for killing a lot of the black leaders. He was under oppression that a lot of these black leaders were assassinated not by the people you think they were assassinated by, but by the government. That's just his opinion. Then you had Michael Moore, who's about as left-wing a communist as you can imagine. He was doing a talk on uh, 
white man being fed up with the cathedral, tired of getting screwed over, tired of being made to be the worst human being on earth, just you know, just sick and tired of all the crap he's thinking. And he looks at Donald Trump as a human Molotov cocktail that you just throw right into the old cathedral and blow it up. And all of them seem to be in agreement with that or for that. And that becomes why all of a sudden. Another thing I would like to know is why exactly did Hamas attack Israel when they attacked them? And who told them to do it? And if you say Iran told them to do it, fine. Well, who told Iran to do it? And would there be any chance that someone in our government, maybe a Barack Obama, may be behind this attack on Israel, trying to stir? I mean, I have so little trust for the for the for the for the. I'm so conscious of the cathedral that I don't believe anything happens by chance anymore. I just want to know what your thoughts are, kids. Thank you, Breeze. Well, I mean, I'll go back to the case we talked about earlier today, and I think we did a decent job. Mike Nunn's a lawyer, and he said, I heard what you said, and I read that article you read. And it's, I mean, if you want to know how much disdain the establishment, the elites, the ruling class, the cathedral, the administrative state, if you want to know how much disdain they have for the common man, it's it's very glaring in this story that Politico did about the Joseph Fisher versus United States case, Rev and I were talking during the break. They're basically the prosecution, our government, mine and your government. If you got a billion dollars in the bank, it's your government. If you're broke and owe a billion dollars, it's still your government. But our government and prosecutors at the Department of Justice, a U.S. American government agency, not the Chinese government, not the Russians, not the you know, not not the Yugoslavia. This is the American government going after its own people, and they've used a law, a statute that was on the books to investigate financial fraud, financial malfeasance in some of these institutions like Enron. I mean, in all honesty, it was about Enron. Enron began when Enron knew they had trouble, and the American government began investigating Enron. They started shredding documents and burning material. I mean, they destroyed, they mutilated, they 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 impeded, they obstructed an official investigation, an official proceeding of the United States. The Department of Justice was digging into Enron, and they were going to find out a lot of unpleasant things. So Enron said, hey, instead of letting them find how fraudulent we've been, destroy it. Get rid of the documents. That's what the law's on the books for. It's Sarbanes-Oxley. You don't have to be a political scholar to understand that Sarbanes-Oxley, but if you want to know how much the cathedral hates the average American, they're taking part of that statute exclusive of the other part. They went to a judge that allowed a prosecution on not Sarbanes-Oxley, but half of it. The part that says, you ready? Obstruction of an official proceeding. Um, I want to make sure I read this right. Uh, obstruction of an official proceeding was part of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act only meant to apply narrowly to financial crimes similar to the ones that produced the law in the first place. But it's being used to prosecute the January 6th offenders. And you should charge those people for trespassing. You should charge those people for vandalism. They're guilty of trespassing. They're guilty of vandalism. 
but they're trying to be char- they're trying to charge them of obstructing, influencing any official proceeding on a law that we know everybody knows the intent of the statute was to protect investigators going after financial criminals at places like Enron. But instead of that, they left out very intentionally. How much disdain must you have for average Americans when you go to a judge and say, I want to prosecute these people for obstructing an official proceeding and I got language in a statute and you don't include all the language because the rest of the language says corruptly alters, destroys, mutilates, seals a record document or any other object with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding have engaged in a criminal act. The Fisher argument is that the two provisions imagine this must be read together. I mean, they're, they're scripted together. They're in the bill, but Jack Smith said, you know, these Trump crowd, this Trump crowd trespassing and vandalism isn't severe enough. I want to put them in jail for 20 years. I mean, I want to put these people in jail. I want to teach a lesson to the hayseeds, hillbillies, and cowboys, the non-elites, I mean, the, you know, the non-establishment, the non-cathedralist. I mean, that's what they're doing, guys. And, and once again, I am all for charges of vandalism. I'm all for charges of, um, of, you know, whatever, uh, trespassing. But that's not good enough. There's got to be a lesson learned here. And under the proper reading, Smith is, I think the court are going to force Jack Smith to prove that the defendants corruptly altered a record as a threshold matter before they can be charged more broadly with obstructing a congressional proceeding. And I think the courts are going to rule in his favor. And it has nothing to do with Trump, but everything to do with Trump. Trump is not the defendant. Joseph Fisher is the defendant. They decided in December to pick the case up. And I believe in the next 60 days or so, there'll, there'll be a decision made by the court. And, and I believe they're going to say, you can't charge these people under the Sarbanes-Oxley statute. You can't pick and choose one line out of a statute and not the statute in totality. You can't do that. And I believe the justices on the court will refer to the law, not the Constitution, but the law on the books and say, you're trying to apply a standard here that's inapplicable. It just doesn't work here. And that's going to really and truly, when you think about it, Rev, the most serious charges Trump has to deal with is obstruction of an official proceeding and conspiring against the United States. And those charges are based on Smith's interpretation of Sarbanes-Oxley. That's going to be devastating if that happens. But to Breeze's point, that's how much Jack Smith hates you. It's not patriotism. It's not protecting democracy. It's not preservation of a union. They have the keys to the liquor cabinet. And they are afraid, they are deathly afraid that somebody is about to take their keys to that liquor cabinet and give them to we the people. And what did Steve Bannon say seven years ago? If you believe these people are going to roll over and give you your country back without a fight, you've got another thing coming. And they're proving to you that they're not going to charge you with trespassing. They're not going to charge you with vandalism. They're going to charge you with a statute that was intended to stop people from destroying documents when they're being investigated for a financial crime. And half the country are okay with that. 
Wow. And I'm a threat to democracy. Let's go to the phone. Daphne and Dylan, good morning. Good morning, guys. I uh, have listened to your program this morning and heard that uh, commercial for Nikki Haley. And AFP, they call themselves Americans for Prosperity, are the ones who are sponsoring those. I started getting flyers back in October from AFP saying Trump could never win. I don't know who is the founder of AFP, but I got the notion that they probably call themselves a 501c and are tax exempt and are using, just as the Democrats are, using those trillions of dollars that are being spread around like confetti that we've got to pay back to use against us. Those particular things drive me crazy. Uh, I was talking to a young military troop uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about uh, Governor Haley. And I said, what do you think of her? He said, well, he said, you do know that she gave 200 acres of South Carolina land next to our military base to the Chinese uh, Communist Party, he said, because you can't call it anything else. He said, and also, he said, uh, I think that she is Joe Biden in drag, and I think she needs a for sale sign put around her neck. He said, she agrees with the leftists more than she agrees with the, with the conservatives. He said when she couldn't tell you whether a man could be a woman the other night, he said, that lets you know right there. He said, she is not one of us. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, Daphne. You. I mean, I've said before, and I'll say it again, I think Nikki is the best candidate I have ever seen when she's scripted and rehearsed. I think she struggles when she's not. And I think being president will require at some point in time during your campaign, kind of an uncontrolled environment. And and running for president is very pressure-packed. She is as good as anybody on either side when she's in control of the conversation, when she is delivering those rehearsed and, and very ah, ah, plasticated answers. But if you start down the road of ad-libbing and genuinely answering a question from the heart and gut and instinct, I think she struggles. And I think the beauty of Trump is what you see is what you get. I mean, the majority of people that know Donald Trump said, I mean, he says those crazy things when he's not on camera. You know, that's kind of who he is. Unapologetically. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Wake up, Carolina, on a Thursday morning. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. David in the PD. Hi, you're on. Oh, gosh. I remember back in the days, uh, Ken, we had a uh, smoking Joe Morrison. Uh, looking across there at a man named Danny Ford, he was kneeling down chewing on a blade of grass. So they call it Smoking Joe. Smoking Joe smoked cigarettes on the sideline back in the day, man. Um, been watching some of the CNBC and Maria on Fox Business there Davos. They're talking about this artificial intelligence. And I heard that story with Mike Nunn had 
I can assure you that was a great story, man. I was thinking about the sound of silence out of the Garfunkel. And uh, could you imagine a soulless algorithm landing that plane? No. That was a human that landed that plane. So keep that in mind. And I need you to explain this to me, Ken. Uh, Drew McKissick was talking about Nevada. So you got a Farm Mariana caucus. What was that all about? In other words, you got an expedition. Exhibition game, and you got one that really counts toward the Milwaukee Convention. I mean, how can you explain, how, explain that one to me, Ken? Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, the, the Nevada GOP has a caucus. The Nevada General Assembly said, no, you're not having a caucus. We're in charge of elections in this state. You're going to have a primary. So the state ordered a primary, and the GOP maintains its caucus status, and Trump is in the caucus, and Haley is in the primary. So don't be real confused in a week or two when Haley says, I won Nevada. And Trump says, I won Nevada. Theoretically, they both did. Because only the, the caucus counts. But the right? caucus has the delegates. Trump is in the caucus. He will win the caucus. He will get the delegates. And it's probably smart on Haley's part to get in the other contest. She, she has something to talk about. Sure. And got a, chance, point. got a chance to win it. Here is Pete in Florence. Good morning, Pete. You're on. All right, thank you. Good morning, everybody. Um, I am an independent voter. And, Ken, I would like to ask your opinion. Uh, I voted for Trump twice, and I will vote for him again. But uh, can you speculate? It may be a little premature, but could you speculate who would be his best choice for VP? Thank you. Appreciate that. I mean, I'm hearing a lot of scuttlebutt about Christy Noem. I heard Elise Stefanik yesterday. Yeah, I, I think he likes Noem better. Trump likes pretty women. Don't overestimate Trump's sophistication. I mean, I know he runs sophisticated businesses, and he's not dumb by any stretch, but he is a very simple man when it comes to things like that. And I think Trump believes, I mean, I think he's been convinced that a female really helps him. I mean, he's got trouble with suburban voters. Um, I mean, they're, they're a little bit nervous about his chaotic, chaotic behavior. Um, you know, women like to be... I don't, I don't want to be, I mean, I don't want to even say that. I'll get myself in trouble when I say that. Women are wired different than men. Let's just leave it there. Um, a little more emotionally invested than men are. I don't think it's an insult. I mean, men are a little more utilitarian. Women are more emotionally involved in certain things. I mean, I think the good Lord wired us fundamentally different. I mean, I don't think, despite what modern woke culture and society says, there's a unique difference in the chromosomal makeup of a man and a woman um, I mean, I think Trump's got to consider Vivek in some way. I mean, I, I do. J.D. Vance. I think Trump's got to consider J.D. Vance. But if he's been convinced that his best choice is a female, Christy Noam, I'm hearing, um, has been vetted and is, is kind of going through that process now. I don't know that to be true. I mean, I'm, you know, a lot of these things I, I speculate on because other people are speculating as well. But, but you know, I Stefanik would obviously be in the mix. Uh, Marsha Blackburn would be a very safe pick. I mean, she's non-volatile. She's middle of the road. She's been around a while. She's respected, not revered, but respected. She's not as, uh, you ready? Not as attractive as Noam. And some women will resent that Christy Noem shows up somewhere in a workout suit. Oh, you think you're all that, do you? Okay. I, I've said that a million times, and I'll stick to it. I think women are, are a little bit, maybe a subconscious, but I think women 
are hesitant to vote for women who think they're all that. And Christy Noem is a striking lady. She dresses, not provocatively, she dresses to show you she don't eat honey buns for every meal. Let me leave it there. There you go. She dresses in a way that leads me to believe she doesn't dine on honey buns three meals a day. Um, and that's, uh, men are attracted to that, but I'm not sure women are. Once again, I'm speculating. I mean, the science of politics is a very soft science. It's not, it's not a hard science. It's not engineering. It's not math. I mean, it, it's a very soft science, and sometimes you can make heads or tails of it, and, and sometimes you can't. But, um, but those are the names that I think he's got to consider. I personally think the best bet, if we're going to sustain uh, a political movement, is J.D. Vance. you got to put Vance near the top of the list because Vance, I think, genuinely lived America first. J.D. Vance is a story. I mean, the, the hillbilly elegy is a book. Is he a convert? I mean, you could argue yes. He's very affiliated with Peter Thiel, who's a big funder of the kind of the, um, the nationalist populist movement that has kind of ushered Trump into um, where we are today. It, it's kind of an anti-establishment movement. I think he's very important in that. He comes from Appalachia. He went off to Yale and got educated. Um, crossed paths with Teal, became part of that Palantir and some of the other companies out there in Silicon Valley. Um, I just think he's he's got credibility, Rev, because he has lived in Appalachia. He has watched the deindustrialization of the mid, the Midwest. He has watched opioid up close and personal ravage um, some of the some of the working class in America. And I think he talks about that in a very profound and personal way. Uh, he's not a woman. And, and, you know, if Trump wants to win here and now, and they believe a female gives him the best chance to win here and now, then I want Trump to pick a woman because I want him to win. But in the long term, I think Ramaswamy is going to be a part of this. I think J.D. Vance is going to be a part of this. I think Blake Masters is not in office, but he's going to be a part of this. I think Rand Paul is going to be a part of this. Mike Lee is going to be a part of this. Um, you know, can't teach old dog new tricks. Well, maybe, maybe not. I think the quicker, I mean, if Trump gets elected, the quicker we can convince the Senate that McConnell doesn't need to be majority leader because the, the Republicans are going to win majority of the Senate. I mean, they'll have 52-ish senators if Trump wins, um, and you need a new majority leader that reflects the interests of America First voters. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.